somewhere in space. This may all be happening right now. 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American Graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here they come. The story of a boy, a girl, and a universe. It's a big, sprawling space saga of rebellion and romance. It's a spectacle, light years ahead of its time. I am C-3PO, human-cyborg relations, and this is my counterpart, R2-D2. Hello. It's an epic of heroes. Good luck. And villains. And aliens from a thousand worlds. in the making and it's coming to your galaxy ciao my people and welcome to yet another patreon bonus episode of gold standard the oscars movie podcast where we travel through time reviewing the films that earned their gold statue or standard if you will i'm one of your co-hosts dj nick and as always joining me at the gold standard theater are my two podcasting partners in crime on one side the fantastic rachel friend hey rachel how are you I am great. I am happy to be back in the Gold Standard Theater. Yes, it has been a while, hasn't it? And and on the other, yes, it, exactly. I've been, I've been missing this, and I'm like, oh come on, you know, it couldn't come faster enough. So I'm glad we actually get this a little early. So I'm happy we get to talk a little bit, you know, um, uh, a new movie. And on the other, of course, we have the fantabulous Zan Sprouse. Hey Zan, how are you? Uh, it's been a rough week, but I'm really glad to be here with you guys today. Oh, we're definitely, I'm definitely very happy to, you know, be talking to you both, as I said, you know, because I just missed the heck out of you both. You know, it's just been way too long and I'm so happy we get to sit down and have a still chat. But we are not alone, of course. We have a couple of guests joining us in the Gold Standard Theatre today. On one side, our patron and reason why we're discussing today's film, Holly McMiller. Hey, Holly, how are you? Doing good. I'm, gl- I'm glad to be invited into the theaters. I'm looking forward to discussing this. <laughs> oh, well, we definitely are very, very happy to have you with us. And of course, we want to thank you very much for your support and patronage and you know, for choosing today's movie. So thank you very much for that. You're very welcome. Awesome. And of course, you know, on, on uh, joining us as well by popular request is a man who I know absolutely loves this movie, Mr. Charles Skaggs. Hey, Charles, how are you doing? I'm doing fabulous, Nick. Thank you so much for letting me sneak in through the back door of the Gold Standard Theater into the into the theater. I really appreciate it. And I'm really looking forward to talking about this movie with you guys. 
Yeah, it's definitely going to be quite a, a fun talk for sure. You know, guys, today, of course, you know, we are zooming off from the Gilded Path to a galaxy far, far away. And this time we're reviewing one of the nominees for Best Picture at the 50th Academy Awards. And yet another film which, as, as I mentioned, is near and dear to quite a few folks present at this panel today. We are, of course, talking about Star Wars, directed and written by George Lucas, who is the man simply behind this groundbreaking franchise and another franchise which you may have heard of known as Indiana Jones. Just a tiny little small little franchise there. The music, of course, was by the wonderful John Williams, who has scored such films as Superman the Movie, of course, Indiana Jones, Jaws, E.T., Home Alone. The list is endless. And on estimate, in today's, to put in today's money, this movie cost around $47 million to make and made over $3 billion at the box office. It opened on May the 25th of 1977 and has a runtime of roughly two hours. So before we get down to the uh, weeds and talk this movie through, guys, let's start with uh, looking at first impressions here. Holly, as you picked this film, first off, why did you pick Mm -hmm. this film? And on your rewatch, you know, what would you say your initial thoughts are about this movie? Uh, Why I picked this one is I kind of went through and I had favorites and it's just like, Mm, this one's kind of near and dear to my heart. My dad introduced me to this movie at the tender age of three via beta tape. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's, cool. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. And for people who don't know what beta is, it was the version before VHS. Wow. I so- knew, yeah. I knew how to load the VCR to play the tape. My dad taught me at a young age, this is its food. So <laughs> I wasn't wow. eating it cookies and oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's definitely old school for sure. You know, more power to you for keeping mm-hmm. it, keeping it old school. And when it comes mm-hmm. to you, Charles, you know, I kind of revealed a little bit that you're a big fan of this film. You know, what would you say are your, you know, initial takes on it when it comes to Star Wars or as, as they know it today, episode four, A New Hope? Well, actually, this was... To put it mildly, this is my all-time favorite movie ever, ever made, oh. as far as I'm concerned. So I'm a little partial with this one. I'm a little biased, admittedly, right up front. But uh, this was something that I got to see for the first time at just about right before I turned eight years old in the movie theater. So I'm one of those oldsters that's old enough to actually have seen Star Wars in the theater during its original run, I saw it four times. At least I was able to con my parents into taking me four times. <laughs> and uh, I fell in love with it instantly. And it's it's the movie that essentially made me fall in love with films. Well, well, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to what you're going to be saying when it comes to this film, for sure. And Rachel, when it comes to you, would you consider yourself a Star Wars fan of the franchise? And what are your initial takes on this one on your rewatch? Um, I am now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was first introduced to Star Wars via osmosis from my brother. Um, He discovered the franchise. I don't know where he discovered it. um, Because I don't think my, I know my mom never watched it. Uh, I think maybe she watched part of one of the prequels because she knows who Jar Jar Binks is. Um, (laughs) But uh, I don't think my dad was really into it. So I have no idea where he discovered it. But I just remember him watching it, oh, sometime in the 90s 
and I would just be like, yeah, that's that weird movie with the, you know, the creatures and stuff. And meanwhile, I'm over in the, you know, my side of the house playing with my Barbies. Um, so it wasn't till uh, I did go and see one of the prequels in theaters just for the sake of me being able to say I did. Because <laughs> I'm like, hey, let's do Star Wars. Because I knew Star Wars was like a big cultural thing. Uh, so when one of, whichever one of the prequels it was, I think it was the second one, um, came out. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? So I can say I went and saw, you know, a, a new Star Wars movie in theaters. So I went and did that. Um, and it wasn't until Disney purchased... Everything Lucas, including Star Wars, um, and we got the new trilogy um, with The Force Awakens that I jumped on the bandwagon fully, and I am now sitting here wearing a t-shirt shirt very that's strictly for this movie actually <laughs> so <laughs> for episode four, I've got all sort I've got all sorts of Star Wars. Uh, paraphernalia now and I uh, you know I watch the Mandalorian religiously when it gets released on on Disney plus I just finished binging rebels so yeah I it's taken a while but I've been converted <laughs> <laughs> well we appreciate you dressing for the occasion Rachel I really really appreciate that and, and to Zan when it comes to you would you consider yourself a fan of the, the Star Wars franchise and of this movie Gigantic, gigantic. <laughs> I was a slow starter. I was a late bloomer to this one. I was about seven when this premiered on HBO for the first time. And to preface this, I have parents, mother who does not like sci-fi and father who does not like anything everybody else likes. So this was not in my wheelhouse. It was not something that they took me to see or I was only a year old when it came out and four years old when Empire Strikes Back came out. So they weren't racing to a theater with me to see it as a child and not buying me toys or anything like that. So seven years old, it premiered on HBO and my friend Carenza down the street had HBO and her mom said, Hey, Zan should come and watch star Wars. And we got bored. I think before the droids even got to Luke, oh, wow. we like, this is just like spaceships and robots. And so we went upstairs and played in her room. So I didn't really think about star Wars too much until, um, Return of the Jedi came out and I went to the theater with my friend Sarah and her brother Eric and her parents and I liked it but I didn't quite get it because I kind of came in into the third movie <laughs> and then it was sort of nowhere for a while that was 1983 and then it was sort of nowhere for a while and then I just had so many friends who loved it and when I was a freshman in high school I met my friend Carrie who was a fan and I said you know I've never seen all of these can I come to your house and we'll because she had them all on VHS at this point, because VHS had won the war over beta, thanks to porn. Interesting story. <laughs> well, that is true. Um, so we went to her house to watch all three of them, and then I immediately, immediately was in love with all of these movies. And then that same, I think the fall, that summer after freshman year is when the Timothy Zahn novels came out, and I devoured those and just oh, started devouring everything that I could. The Han Solo novels, the... The Lando Calrissian novels, the novelizations mm -hmm. of the movies, uh, 
Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which turned out to be a big part of my future. <laughs> and um, then just was so excited when the special editions finally came out, because this was the first time I was able to see the first two movies in theaters for, you know, take that as it will be. So now, gigantic fan, married to the man who did the comic adaptation of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, and we have I Know engraved on our wedding rings. Oh, well, that's, that's nice. beautiful. Nice. I, I, I love that story for sure. I mean, I have to admit that unlike quite a few of us here, I've never been the biggest Star Wars fan and have not watched this in ages, despite having been given a copy of the original trilogy on DVD and it has sat on my shelf unwatched until now. It's not that I don't enjoy these films, but I guess I never truly got it, if you will. I was curious, and I was curious to see how I would feel about it now, but more about that when we get to ratings. So let's get to our players on the board here, starting with our farm boy and hero to be, Mr. Mark Hamill, of course, as Luke Skywalker at his film debut here, as he had done a lot of TV prior to this. And this was his very first, she was a big. Uh, debut on the on the on the silver screen and he, folks of course will know him aside from this from the flash for being the trickster in the 90s tv show of the flash of course the iconic voice of the joker in batman the animated series and also he reprises the role of the trickster in uh, the uh, current flash tv show uh, tv show as well so let's start with speaking of the flash let's start with you charles what did you make of luke skywalker in this film well how did i know you were going to go to me after setting up flash references. Oh, Jeez. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeah. Um, Luke in this film initially obviously comes off a bit whiny. Needless to say, he's obviously, you know, he's, he's alone on, not really alone, but essentially he doesn't have many friends. All of his friends have gone off to the Academy and he's kind of left alone with his, uncle and aunt, um, you know, uncle Owen, aunt Baru and stuck on this moisture farm. So essentially he's trapped in this life that he doesn't want. He wants to go off with his friends. He wants to have adventures. He's young, impulsive, uh, reckless, needless to say, but so I'm sorry, go ahead. He has too much of his father in him, Charles. Yeah, he does have too much of his father in him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, thankfully, not enough of his father in him, as it turns out. But that's a whole different movie, right? Yes. So, mm-hmm. but, but needless to say, it, it's very much, um, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of the hero's journey here with Luke. Because he's starting off from very humble beginnings, almost like in a, in a Superman kind of way. He starts off on a farm. And he then he... He goes off and, and finds his destiny later on when, you know, C-3PO and R2-D2 eventually come into his life after escaping uh, Princess Leia's cruiser and the clutches of Darth Vader. So so it's it's just, you know, it, it's it's obviously, you know, that, that kind of heroic fantasy where, you know, someone who's in this very desolate life gets, to, you know, to do something exciting, goes off, has this big adventure, gets to save the day at the end. And uh, destroy the Death Star. Spoilers, right? Um, after, <laughs> after you know what? It's almost uh, forty-five years. No big deal. But, um, but, but yeah, it just you know, it's 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 this hero's journey, and in and Mark Hamill plays this with such um, charm. 
Parm in a lot of ways. Yes, he's whiny at the beginning. He's a little bit annoying, but you know, eventually when he steps up and he's forced to step up to the plate, especially I think there's that big transitional moment when Ben dies that um, he finally gets his head in the game and he steps up to the plate. He has to help save the day and he does. And he's, you know, rewarded for it. He gets a nice medal at the end. And uh, this big fairy tale comes to a, a, a rousing close. So, um, you know, just a wonderful performance by Mark Hamill. And, uh, you know, just an iconic science fiction character. Very well said. And Rachel, what about you? What did you make of Luke Skywalker in this first of the first film of this trilogy of this first trilogy? Um, well, I, he, he definitely comes off as a little whiny at first, you know, Mr. I was going to go to Tashi Station and pick up some power converters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, once, uh, you know, once his aunt and uncle are killed and he realizes that, you know, any point and purpose for him staying on, you know, this just seemingly desolate desert planet, even with its, you know, twin sons, um, <laughs> that, um, you know, he wanted to get away. Yeah, he's now he's got no reason to stay so he can get away, even if it's not to go to the academy like he wanted. Um, and he finds himself, you know, thrust into this whole crazy, you know, the start of the hero's journey, you know, essentially. Um, so, um, he, he definitely comes into his own by the time we get to the end of, end of the movie. Um, and he gets a chance to, to fly and help destroy the Death Star and, and all that. So, um... You can see the you can see the potential of where Luke is going to go by the time we get to Return of the Jedi. Well, very true. And Zan, what about you? What are your thoughts on Luke Skywalker? Luke definitely, like Charles said, he goes through a lot of moments of growth and character growth and personal growth. And you have to hand it to the great Mark Hamill for this character because like Rachel says, he starts out extremely whiny and he has several moments. I think of that self reflection, introspection, like what, what am I going to do now? You know, the first one being when he's in front of the binary sunset thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know anybody here. I have to help my, my uncle. He's in need of farm help, but I don't want to be a farmer. I have other things to do. He's sort of looking off into the distance, into the universe and, He's sort of realizing, i got to figure out a way to come into my own. And then when Aunt Beru and, and uh, Uncle Owen, they die, I think he has another moment of, I think that grows him up real quick. He's like immediately like, all right, I gotta, I got to get out of here. Not only do I think he realizes that if they traced who they sold the droids to, they're going to find Luke. So he's got to go and he's got a bigger purpose. And I think talking to Ben is more of an adult because you get the feeling that he knows who Ben is and has seen him before, but Ben has really kind of kept away, you know, let Luke's process of growing, he just let that sort of happen without his interference. And I think, and as we know, there's a reason for that. He's probably trying to keep anybody from finding Luke. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So he's got, you know, he has Uncle Owen Aunt Beru's death, and then he talks to Ben and realizes that there is something bigger out there than him. Yes, he wants to go to the academy. Yes, he wants to be a pilot instead of a farmer in Sea Worlds rather than 
sustain worlds, which is what Uncle Owen is doing. You know, the moisture farmer in the desert. He's very necessary, but it's not what Luke wants. And then he does come face to face with the enemy. He meets people who are who seem to not have any direction other than their own selfish financial direction, which would be Han Solo. Um, he runs into prejudice with the whole "we don't serve droids." You know, he starts. Mm-hmm. He sees a lot in the you know in this two hours that we see him. And then when Obi Wan Kenobi dies, you know, he's I, I want to say one of the novelizations. I think it's Return of the Jedi where he talks about Yoda. He's like, once again, Luke is orphaned. You know, Luke is orphaned like five times in his life. Mm-hmm. And so we have, you know, we have the death of Obi-Wan and we have him taking the lead in this fight where it's all or nothing. And so, yeah, he starts out as this whiny kid and he grows up real, real fast. And I think Mark Hamill does a fantastic, fantastic job with his character. And um, Mark Hamill, who, by the way, got a B plus in high school drama, which I know because I've seen Mark Hamill's high school yearbook. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. He went to to high school in Japan. And when I was in high school, I had friends of mine. We were all Star Wars obsessed. And my friend Ben had this girlfriend named Kelly. And we were talking about Star Wars and Mark Hamill. And she said, oh, my mom went to high school with him. We're like, get the hell out of here. (laughs) She's like, no, really? And we're like, yeah, he went to high school in Japan. She's like, yeah, my mom did too. Because her mom was military, family, military family. So we're like, shut the front door. You need to bring (laughs) us that yearbook like right now. So the next day, like we're all huddled around a table. She's practically wearing white gloves and and tweezers (laughs) to turn the pages. And there, there he was, Mark Hamill, high school, B plus drama. Wow. Well, I, thank you, thank you for that fantastic anecdote, Sam. You know, I love that. And, and Holly, what about you? Now, now that we also know that Mark oh. Hamill got a B plus in acting, he got what so he... much better. He got yes. so much better yes. with experience. <laughs> True, yes, he did. What, what mean, do you think like of him it, here? Like everybody said, I mean, starts off whiny, and then too, I think he's realizing as well with his journey that his actions do cause consequences with, you know, buying the droids and then going to Mos Eisley and then finding out, oh, crud, Empire's looking for us, that leads back home. And Ben trying to stop him, like, hey, kid, (laughs) danger, stay safe. And I'm sure Ben was getting flashbacks to (laughs) Anakin and some of the stuff that he did from the prequels. Yeah. But, I mean, cautious, but then just to the sparring that he had with Han and trying to find a new a new family and being tossed into becoming a hero and fighting for the rebellion against the Empire. So, the start of a hero's journey... <laughs> It is. It is very much the start of the hero's journey. I mean, I, I must say that considering this was literally the first time the world at large, you know, outside of maybe US TV watchers, were introduced to Mark Hamill, who was 26 here apparently, because obviously, as I mentioned, he only had TV roles. I was impressed because from the get-go, you can tell that granted it's on another planet, but I'm sure that tons of mid-20-year-olds could relate to Luke. 
as you know, he may be a little bit secluded and not particularly streetwise, but he is very much that kind of down home, good hearted country boy. And and I funny story was when I rewatched this, at some point I actually muted the sound and I put on John Denver's Thank God I'm a Country Boy, because it works so well <laughs> with seeing Luke walking around the farm. But yeah, that's just me being being silly. But but yeah, he is that good hearted country boy with the big dreams and is helping his aunt and uncle as a farmhand mechanic and I guess he's a little bit of a gas monkey as well because uh, he also knows his mechanical stuff and he's very wide-eyed and wanting to see more of the world and no surprise Disney jumped on Star Wars because this is the origin story of a Disney character. It so (laughs) is. So I'm like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I can see why this works for Disney. And apparently he's also quite patriotic as well as he's itching to join the Academy like you all mentioned and do his part in the fight against the Empire. And I also wonder how many women the guy has actually seen, as he seems very awkward around the, the female sex, if you will. And we do see this also, especially with Princess Leia, which we'll get to, which we'll get to later. But all in all, I would very much say he's a kid with a big heart, for sure, and very lovable. I mean, I definitely enjoyed, enjoyed Luke Skywalker. So... Let's get to Luke's mentor and who will start him on the journey to the concept of the Force and becoming a Jedi Knight and one of my grandma's heartthrobs alongside (laughs) Sir Patrick Stewart, of course, Sir Alec Guinness as Ben Obi-Wan Kenobi, who, who of course, our listeners might know from Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, A Passage to India, and also The Bridge on the River Kauai, which we'll also be at some point reviewing on this this podcast. So let's start with you, Rachel. What did you make of Sir Alec Guinness and the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi? Uh, I love Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> just as a character. Um, and you know, Sir Alec Guinness, what can you say? Um, although apparently he hated that that was like the thing he was most known for after the fact. <laughs> um, which you know, it's 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 an unfortunate thing, you know, but it was a sign at the time for you know. Yeah, you know, franchises weren't really a thing yet, uh, you know, because sequels weren't really a thing because they were considered cash grabs. Um, so, but I mean, his his portrayal of Obi Wan is just so iconic, um, and uh, you know, you and McGregor had some big shoes to fill when they went to go do the prequels. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, more power to him uh, for for taking that on. Um, but yeah, just Obi-Wan is just, um, he's just, he's like that cool, like uncle or family member or family friend that's like lived like this amazing life when he was younger and has just gone into like quiet retirement and, you know, all the younger kids are like, I want to hear about, you know. When you fought, you know, whatever, and he's just like, eh, you know, back in my day. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, he's, uh, it's it's obvious that, um, well, I mean, now, I say obvious now because we've had things like the prequels and the the cartoon series which are considered mm-hmm. canon too um so now that we know where obi-wan has come from even though at the time al guinness didn't know that but you can kind of infer um some of the things he says and does 
are based on where he's come from because, you know, at this point, the Jedi, what few Jedi are left have just been scattered across the galaxy and he's just been living on this planet kind of from a far, far distance watching over Luke, knowing who Luke is Mm -hmm. um, and knowing that odds are they're passing across and the force is probably going to, you know, send them down a particular path. Um, and he, he, you know, he could have been really reluctant about it, but the Obi-Wan that we have come to know is just so, um, in tune with the force and just trusts it so much that, you know, when their paths do cross, and Luke is all like, you know, this droid says he belongs to an Obi-Wan Kenobi. And, you know, he could have been like a, I don't know who that is. But instead, he's like, yeah, that's me. And, you know, the ball goes rolling downhill from there. Um, you know, and what do you consider compared to someone like Mark Hamill or Harrison Ford or Carrie Fisher? He's not, he doesn't have a ton of screen time. Um, but what he when he is on screen he just he he commands the you know the attention and you just want to listen to this wise person who just obviously has knowledge to impart um and it's kind of a shame that you know obi-wan had to had to 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 die um because there's just so much that he could have taught luke um you know, not just about the Force, but his family history and everything, too. Um, but, um, you know, it is, it is what it is. Um, and um, I could definitely see why uh, Sir Alec won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this role. Oh, yes, indeed. And Zan, what about you? What are your thoughts on Obi-Wan Kenobi? Obi-Wan Kenobi is such a complex and wise character and Alec Guinness is at the time, I think probably the only person you could have gotten to get to do this. One. Yeah. And he's such, you know, I, I have to talk about Alec Guinness a little bit first before we talk too much about Obi-Wan Kenobi as a character, because like Rachel said, he didn't want to do this movie. And when he was probably happy that Obi-Wan Kenobi dies in this movie, and then they call him up in 1979 going, Hey, Alec, uh, you need to come back as a ghost. He's probably like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so, but this consummate professional actor who does this movie that he thinks is stupid. I mean, he doesn't just dislike this movie. He's very dismissive of it. He thinks it's stupid. He thinks it's childish. He's like, whatever. I, I need a boat. I don't know what he was thinking at the time, but <laughs> whatever it was, He's, but he's still probably thinking to himself, okay, yeah, this is a stupid movie with a stupid plot and a bunch of stupid young people running around the stupid desert, but I took this stupid job, and I'm going to do it. You know, he's, he's I, I have one job on this ship, and it's stupid, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> so, like, I'm still a professional. Yeah, I'm still a professional, <laughs> damn it, and they're paying me a lot of money to just hang out in London for a while, and I have to go to, I have to go to, uh, Tunisia for a little bit, but they're paying for it. It's going to be fine. So, yeah. 
He's got he he's it's not like the you know the first time he's done a movie in the desert so yeah he's got Austin <laughs> freaking gold he can he can deal with it so I, he's just he's you know and we'll talk about this a little bit later with another absolute consummate professional which is Peter Cushing but he does such a good job in this role and it's hard for me now because like I told you guys I saw Return of the Jedi before I saw Star Wars and. So I, 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 all I have is the the knowledge of what came after was always there that I didn't have I didn't have any oh okay realization sort of knowledge it was all there when you're when you're a child on the playground there's no such thing as spoilers we all knew that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father at the time <laughs> you know, it, there was no spoilers I knew the basic premise of the story so when I watch this movie and there's a, that scene where he's like Obi Wan Kenobi and you know he's thinking about it. There's part of me that wonders if there was a process in him that was thinking, okay, this is the moment where Obi-Wan is thinking, okay, this is now. This is, this is happening now. I, you know, I don't think he necessarily knew when the time would be, if there was going to be a time to tell Luke who he really was, who Luke really was. And he still doesn't tell Luke who Luke really is. You know, he sort of tiptoes around the subject. But, you know, you see him sitting there thinking, Obi-Wan, and he's, like, really mulling it over in his head, thinking, okay, this is the moment. This is the moment I'm going to come clean. And, you know, say things like, you know, this is your father's lightsaber. This is, this is, I fought with your father in the Clone Wars. He was betrayed by Darth Vader. Where he tells Luke this entire story where he finally realizes, okay, Luke has come to me. He must be ready. And you get the feeling that Obi-Wan has bit, you know, he, he brought... Luke to Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru mm-hmm. as what what are what are he and Uncle Owen there like yeah. are they technically stepbrothers or like <laughs> I guess. Yeah, something to that get exactly how it works. But anyway, they're family, quote unquote. So he mm-hmm. um he brings he brings them to them and he just stays there. He stays there to watch over him because he knows that Leia's gonna be watched over by Jimmy Smith's. <laughs> and he, Luke needs somebody to, to to keep an eye out for him because I don't think Uncle Owen does sort of try and not tell him about his past. He's not quite Uncle Vernon, but he's very like, stop it. We don't talk about that. Uh-huh. So, he know, I think he was there waiting for Luke to come to him. And he's like, all right, this is the day. And I think Alec Guinness does such a fantastic, fantastic job with that. And as we find out, and it, I, that's the one thing that I really... Well, I, there are some things I do love about the prequels. I make fun of them, but there are things I love about them. And one of the best things to come out of the prequels is Ewan McGregor and his performance of Obi-Wan Kenobi and the fleshing out of that character that we learn more about who Obi-Wan is and we learn more about where he started. And, you know, we still don't know a lot about his personal life. We don't know if he was ever in love. We don't know what his family life was like. Hopefully we'll get that in the Obi- in the, in the Kenobi TV series if that ever shows up. But... Uh-huh. You know, at least we got to learn more about that character. And uh, Ewan McGregor, by the way, who is the real-life nephew of uh, Dennis Lawson, who is uh, Wedge, Wedge in these movies. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, yep. um, but yeah, Obi-Wan, it's I a small like... world. It's <laughs> 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 just a very small island, you guys. So, yeah. <laughs> I feel like he's he's one of the characters in this that, while you get closure with him, you really are left with wanting more. True. Uh-huh. 
Mm. Yeah, it's true because it's really it's a major major tease when it comes to this character. It's like, oh no, he died. I wanted more of this chap. And he I, was such I really a nice fu- old man. <laughs> I felt so and, so upset about. Yeah. I have to correct myself. Alec Guinness did not win the Academy Award, but he was nominated. So oh. my bad. Yeah, no, this didn't win any acting stuff, but it took. It was one of the first movies that was like, oh, technical stuff. Let's technical get stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> these, we'll get to these, that discussion here yeah. later. Yes. We will. <laughs> um, and and Holly, when it comes to you, what were your thoughts on Obi Wan Kenobi? Uh, loved him. I mean, you could like everybody else is saying, you could see Obi Wan's thought process, and okay. And then when he sees R2, like, oh, hello, little one. And I bet he was thinking in the back of his mind, oh, boy, you're back. You're like, dude, don't blow this. <laughs> Let me handle exactly. this, dude. Yeah, it's just like. Follow it's, my lead, bro. It's just like, yeah, it's just like, good thing Luke doesn't understand droid. And 3PO, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> At least 3PO has had his memory wiped more times than R2-D2, so. Thank goodness for that. But, I mean, just the understated and, you know, early certain point of view, which we won't find out until Empire and Return of the Jedi. But, I mean, Ben did as best as he could. And I think he was trying also, in a way, lead Luke, but then trying to not make the same mistakes that he and Qui-Gon did with Anakin. <laughs> yeah. From the prequels. We, we messed the first kid up. We got to do better this time around. <laughs> exactly. Oh, wow. We got to yes, redo. It's... Let's not goof this up. <laughs> yes. you, you only get one do over, I think, when it comes to that. Um, right. But, yeah. Oh, oh, great, great stuff for sure. And, and Charles, what about you? What are your thoughts about Obi Wan Kenobi? Obi Wan Kenobi. Now, that is a name I have not heard in a long time. <laughs> a long time. Good time. Yeah. Now, um, Alec Guinness no, is just... He's me. <laughs> Alec Guinness is fantastic in this. Uh, obviously, uh, his role is, is obviously the Luke's mentor, the one who helps get him started on his journey, becoming a Jedi. And he's the, the essentially in this movie an old, almost like an old samurai warrior coming mm. back into, into uh, action once again, after being retired for so long. Um, you know, it's interesting because uh, when I was doing my research for this, I found that apparently Alec Guinness was cast instead of an actor named Toshiro Mifune, mm. who was big in the Akira Kurosawa films. So it's kind of interesting that that Lucas was originally thinking about going along the lines of kind of like a samurai type warrior with this, I think. And then probably that's okay, the Mandalorian will take care of that years later. Yeah, well, that's a, that's more the Mandalorian's a spaghetti western. Yeah, definitely yeah. more than the samurai movie. But uh, yeah, the um, you know just Alec Guinness, I think, was you know Lucas surrounded himself with all these unknowns unknown actors for, for the rest of the role. So I think he probably wanted somebody with gravitas and obviously Sir, Ga- Sir Alec Guinness has that gravitas. He's the one that uh, brings the, a little bit more credibility to what, again, this was sci-fi in the seventies. So it didn't get a lot of respect. Wasn't really highly regarded. Obviously, you know, the only acting nomination was Sir Alec Guinness and he ended up losing to Jason Robards. So, it just, um, I think, I think Alec Guinness here just brought more, like I said, that gravitas to the role. And he, you know, as, as Obi-Wan, um, you know, he's, 
And it's interesting, you know, was watching these after all the movies later, uh, that you 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 get this sense, this feeling that he was so very secretive about what he wanted to tell Luke or what didn't want to tell Luke. He you know he kept things from Luke. He was very evasive in his answers. And even though you know when this movie was made, there was no conception. I think that they were going to do any more after this. So so it's it's very interesting that you know you can after you. Know, know nine films that you could go back and and watch this original film and and see these this kind of layered um you know this 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 very nuanced performance from from guinness when he's talking with luke and trying to talk a little bit about his father but not too much and and it, and it it, it just created a nice little sense of mystery, but it didn't bog you down in the adventure. It didn't grind everything to a halt to address that mystery. And then, you know, there's a great moment. One of my favorite moments in this movie is when uh, Ali, you know, Obi-Wan gets confronted in the cantina by um, the kind of pug-nosed guy and the walrus man. Mm-hmm. And yeah. basically, you know, whips out the lightsaber, hacks off walrus man's arm, and proves that, you know, he's not just some old doddering guy. He's still a formidable, formidable warrior. And, uh-huh. and I thought that was a really big moment. And, and, you know, here's Luke who just kind of regarded Ben as being this old hermit, seeing him in action for the first time as a Jedi. And I think, you know, being taken aback by that. And it's a just, great look on his face. Like, damn old man. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, Seriously, dude, like Obi Wan's got the mad skills, yo. Right, but and Charles, even... he has a name. Panda Baba is more than just his race. Okay, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> face. <laughs> and then it also kind of—I mean, Han was. Yeah, if it wasn't on the action figure box, then I didn't know it. And it bumps. <laughs> he doesn't like it you. Obi Wan up a little bit too, and I don't like you either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'll be dead. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it was great to see those guys again in Rogue One, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Well, see, I, I mean, thank you for putting that also into context, Zan, because as, as I said, you know, I'm not the most, uh, shall we say, well-read when it comes to all the various alien races. <laughs> I appreciate you saying, giving Walrus Man a, a name and a, and a face. I love every that so much. Every character has a name, even if it's not posted anywhere, and George Lucas knows every single one of them. I, I, I think, it was I, on the action figure packaging. That's how we knew as kids. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to say, you know, when it comes to Obi-Wan Kenobi, he is probably my favorite character in this film. Is just the experience, you know, both as an actor and as a Jedi is just so tangible. And, you know, to take off from your point, Charles, I would actually say he is literally a sensei because he has that very much, um, that the gravitas and uh, demeanor and stuff that's very much uh, typical of a sensei and you know to me almost a rabbinical character in his wisdom and calmness and you never see him lose his temper or raise his voice even in the face of extreme danger it's just he is so zen and i wish i had half of that kind of zen and you do wonder he's kind of this cool warrior monk almost Mm -hmm. yeah Which would probably explain why, like you were pointing out, you know, Charles, about the fact of possibly wanting to cast an Asian character for this, to have the whole samurai 
um, Zen master feel, why, you know, cause that's exactly the kind of impression I got. But you do wonder why he decided to embrace the life of a hermit and isolate himself from the rest of the world. Because, you know, I tried to watch this obviously in a vacuum, not knowing about the other movies, you know, kind of, because I, I can barely remember the prequels. As I said, you know, I'm not the, the biggest uh, Star Wars guy. So that's why I was like, why did he do this and possibly, you know, not even seek out Luke or try to pass the torch onto him when it came to Ways of the Force and such, as we do know that Luke knows of him and knows him, unless you, I, I, I attributed this to Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru just not wanting uh, Ben hanging around the house and uh, in getting him killed like his dad was. And I guess that's maybe they, why they see Obi-Wan as a potential bad influence on Luke. So like, we don't want you hanging around this creepy old man kind of thing. So that was what I chalked it up to. Um, other than that, you know, I cannot say enough good things about this character. And I did have this debate at the time when there were some of my friends when he is killed by Darth Vader, as I believe he deliberately allows himself to be killed. Okay. Because to give Luke that extra motivation, because, you know, when you, when you see in the fight, it seems like he turns and sees Luke and then kind of, you know, makes some odd move and that gives um, Vader an opening to kill him. Okay. So it seems yep. to me that he just lets himself die because it's like, I have to move on. It's Luke's time. Let's let the young blood take over. So, but he really did upset me. I was really sad when, when Obi-Wan died because he's my favorite character in this. Um, so let's get to another major player and whose mom we had talked about in our previous uh, Patreon episode review of Singing in the Rain, the late great Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia, daughter, of course, to Debbie Reynolds. Uh, of course, our listeners will know Carrie Fisher from the Blues Brothers, when Harry met Sally, the women, and so much more. And I think it's apt that we start with you, Zan, when it comes to Princess Leia and Carrie Fisher. Since, you know, you gave us those, that great story about, you know, how much this character means to you and also the actress. So what were your thoughts on Princess Leia in this first uh, Star Wars film? Yeah, I, I, st- I've been, I said it for years, and I know I'm not supposed to say it, but Carrie Fisher was my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> Princess Leia was, in 1977... One of the most amazing things you could have seen as a girl, as a little girl. Um, she still had some of the classic tropes. She was a princess. She was kind of a... Um, she wasn't a particularly spoiled bratty princess, though. You know, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't like a princess Vespa, like, you know, bring my, bring my hair dryer through the desert or anything like that. But <laughs> she was very much, you know, the princess who's used to being the one who gets people to do what they're told, stuff like that. She does need to be rescued, but then at the same time, so does everybody in this movie. Mm-hmm. At one point or another, everybody needs to be rescued from something. So to have this character who gets sprung from jail, and, well, first of all, she's high up in her government, you know, her her princess title, you know, usually, which is more of a sort of an honorary monarchy type of a title, especially in 1977 when the monarchy of England is more of a figurehead, more of a power source. She's very high up in the rebellion. So she holds a high position in the rebellion and she is getting stuff done. She is taking risks for herself. That's her ship that is going to, that gets the transmission that is, and she's, she's put the stuff in R2, put the information in R2. She's sent it out. She's put her, her life at risk to do this. So she's really boots on the ground when it comes to this rebellion. She's not at all 
just telling people what to do. She's she's in it. So you have mm-hmm. you have that which is amazing. And she gets sprung from jail after having been tortured, after having watched her entire planet be destroyed. And she's just immediately taken charge. Like, all right, we're going this way. We're doing that. We're doing this. You're going to listen to me because you're an idiot. And <laughs> she's, she kind of helps get them out of there. You know, she, she takes charge. She's got the gun and she's shooting the stormtrooper. She's not just in the background waiting for the fighting to be over or anything like that. And granted, she doesn't go up in the dogfight, but she's not a pilot. So it's, there, there's reasons why she's not boots on the ground at that point but that was something that we had not seen as little girls before and to grow up having been born in 1976 and to grow up in a world of princess leia and ellen ripley and like all of these female characters who came after her that actually did something i cannot i cannot even begin to express how profound that was on a generation of women. How amazing being able to have this. And, you know, unfortunately, she is the only girl <laughs> in Star Wars pretty much yep. for a long time. But it's like we finally had one person. And Carrie Fisher herself just talked about this. And when I say this, I'm trying to talk about how Carrie Fisher saw it. And I'm not trying to make any, any quality judgments on her or anything like that. She was a short girl with chipmunk cheeks. You know, she wasn't this tiny-footed Cinderella, big boobs, tiny waist, tall Disney princess. And she had a very commanding voice, a very beautiful low voice, unlike the sort of airy Snow White type of voice that we were used to. So even for little girls who weren't blonde, who weren't, tall who weren't dancing who (laughs) just any any of that disney stuff we could still feel like we could get stuff done and we weren't identifying with the princess part we were identifying with the woman she was and i that that's so incredibly incredibly profound for an for generations to come specifically gen x because that's who was kids when they saw this movie Mm. and her character is I feel like any flaws she has as a character are because she was written at a time that she was written and written by a man but she still was the first thing we'd ever seen the way that was and I think Carrie Fisher did such a fantastic job Carrie Fisher will also make fun of the fact that she comes and goes with that tiny little British accent at the beginning where she starts out with star systems may slip through your fingers and then by the end of it she's like this bucket of bolts you know she's (laughs) Carrie Fisher will admit that she had some growing to do as an actress in this movie but she was so fantastic she was someone that audiences knew she was pretty not necessarily for being an actress but for being who, she was one of those people that was famous for being famous. She was the daughter of two incredibly famous people. Like Her baby pictures were in Photoplay magazine. <laughs> so a lot of people knew who she was, and this was really something very different from, for her if you thought about like her roles in maybe, like sh- say, Shampoo or something like that. This was a really commanding female lead that Carrie Fisher did, and I think she was absolutely up for the challenge. She was fantastic. 
Well, and, and, and great that I mentioned, of course, I suppose also the pressure that she must have had, you know, being, you know, um, the daughter to, to Debbie Reynolds, who had, you know, such an incredible career and was so well known. You know, I can only imagine the pressure, you know, coming from that. And uh, Holly, when it comes to you, what are your thoughts on Princess Leia? Like Zian was saying, not your not your typical princess, not your damsel in distress. Take charge. <laughs> you know, I mean, just being able to, if you can't trust somebody else to do it, do it yourself. <laughs> and, I mean, what else can you say? I mean, role model for all of us girls growing up. <laughs> that channel your we've all got a little bit of that fighter princess in us don't be afraid to let it show very true i I love that and and charles what about you what are your thoughts on on princess leia well obviously i can't come at it from the approach of her being a role model to me as you know a young boy but um but i can't come at from the approach that she was in a lot of ways a role model to to everyone because like Zan said, you know, she's she wasn't the stuck up princess, even though Han used to tease her a lot about that. Um, she was willing to get down there and, you know, get her hands dirty, do the do what needed to be done. And as a result, I think it it's what you know earned her a lot of respect from not just not just women or and young girls, but also from from men and young and young boys, because one of my favorite scenes personally is the scene where they're escaping the detention center, and they're 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 basically um, being held off on you know uh, by by you, you've got stormtroopers and they're they're kind of like in this in this um, little corridor and. She's uh, Leah. Leah takes this moment. She look apprises the situation very quickly. Says, "Look, give me that gun." Takes the gun, blasts a hole in the you know down by um, this access port to uh, that leads them down into the the garbage masher, and mm-hmm. immediately you know without hesitation you know she tells everybody into the fly in, into the garbage chute flyboy, and. Without hesitation, she dies in herself, you know, not knowing what she's got to face on the other side. And so it just kind of showed you, you know, that that commanding leadership. She wasn't just, you know, like like a great reference that Zan made was, you know, comparing her to Prince, Princess Vespa from Spaceballs, <laughs> she, which, you know, it, you know, she's she definitely was not that she, you know, she was very take charge Um showed that leadership ability, showed that decisiveness. Um, and then, you know, like when she's being held captive by Tarkin and Vader, uh, right before, you know, they destroy Alderaan and they, they intimidate her. They try to, you know, you know, here's Vader standing like three feet taller than her over her. And, you know, she's backed up against Tarkin, nowhere to go, but she doesn't buckle. She doesn't cave. She stands up for herself and, and, and gives them some false information, not knowing that, yes, of course, being the Empire, they're going to ignore her and, you know, just say, well, that's nice. Thanks for the info, but we're still going to blow up Alderaan. And, you know, leading here to go like, what? So 
but but you know like i said she didn't know that and so she you know was willing because she believed in the rebellion so much that um she was willing to protect them even at the expense of her own life which 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 was phenomenal and you know she also had a very human side you know like there's there's a great another great moment on the falcon where just after obi-wan has sacrificed himself and so that they could get away that you know she she takes this blanket and wraps it around luke and obviously this is far way before we know that they're actually related as brother and sister but she's very comforting to him you know someone who she you know barely knows for like maybe all of five minutes and uh you know she's very caring and compassionate toward him and i thought that was another great side of her that's yeah it's beautiful for sure i i agree with you charles and and rachel you know you i know you being a big fan of of um uh, carrie fisher's mom debbie reynolds what did you what are your thoughts on carrie fisher and the character of princess leia um she's just yeah yeah i i can see why so many people looked up to her and why she was you know girls that see this person who's got the moniker of princess but does not really fit any of the princess tropes um why they would be drawn to her um you know i i recognize the the importance of that i can't say that i was really drawn to her i don't know why um but she's not necessarily one of my favorites um that's not to say that I don't enjoy watching her, though, and um, seeing her grow as a character throughout the the movies. Um, and I'm glad that you know she gets to she got to come back at least for two out of the three um, films. Um, so um, she she's just she is very very cool, and it, it, I'm always happy to see. Uh, female character, especially in a film that's just so heavily male in this case, um, who is not afraid to get her hands dirty. Um, it isn't just standing, you know, to the side while the men are shooting their guns and throwing punches and whatever and, um, you know, being the damsel in distress, going, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Ah! You know, uh, I'm so glad she's not like that, because that, would, that would have turned me off probably the entire franchise <laughs> really quickly. Um, so, and, you know, Carrie Fisher, God love her. You know, this was like her first, like, big role, her breakout role. And, um, you know, she wanted to... She wanted to pave her own way because, yeah, she was kind of famous just for existing um, and not necessarily for a good reason. Um, you know, yes, both of her parents were extremely famous on their own and their marriage, you know, was, you know, at that time in Hollywood was kind of the, 
yeah, the thing, but her parents' marriage falling apart and her dad leaving her mother for Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, <laughs> she describes it as her parents help. were the Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston of their time, and yeah. Angelina Jolie was Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> yeah, so it's like she was more famous for her dad just up and leaving her mother for yeah you know, to become one of Elizabeth Taylor's you know fifty thousand husbands. Um, but you know she she wanted to she wanted to have a career of her own and and pave her own way. I mean, when they were setting up for the the cast to to fly um, to start filming and to save money, everyone was going to fly coach. And apparently Debbie Reynolds found out about it and called up George Lucas and was giving him the third degree. You know, I was like, how can you have my daughter be flying in coach? You know, (laughs) that's such an embarrassment how my daughter be treated. And and Carrie happened to be there with George. And she's like, hand me the phone, George. And he did. And she was like, you know, mom, I'm flying coach, and that's the end of that. F you and hung up. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> you know that that's Carrie Fisher in a nutshell. Actually, you know, even even when you know Lucas would try to ha- you know uh, convince her to do things like you know not wear underwear uh, with that white dress and uh, yeah, her boobs were essentially held in place with gaffer's tape uh, because according to George Lucas women didn't wear underwear in space (laughs) there's no (laughs) underwear in space yes so which she knew was a whole bunch of BS but she did it anyway um and Princess you know, Leia died bathed in moonlight, strangled by her, own, by her bra. own bra. Yes. <laughs> yep. yeah. So, uh, you know, she didn't have necessarily the best time filming this movie, but uh, I guess she enjoyed it well enough to come back again and again and again. And again, <laughs> <laughs> well, those those are quite some stories. So I guess we could say that Carrie Fisher was Princess Leia through and through, even off the screen oh, as well. Oh yes, yes, <laughs> she, she definitely marched to the beat of her own drum. Uh, you know, even up until the very end, Carrie actually she was she came to town for a comic convention years ago, um, and I didn't going to meet her because it was just a mad the the, the crowd oh your whole day is the line when you're yeah, trying to meet Carrie would have been the line and for some reason they put her right next to Jenna Coleman's table and like you're putting like two of the biggest like names here right next to each other hello crowd control but apparently <laughs> Carrie spent the entire convention when people would come up to get an autograph sprinkling people with glitter Oh wow! Whether they wanted it or not. <laughs> yeah, if you guys if you guys haven't read her books, Wishful Drinking. Oh yes, yeah. Um, and oh, I can't think of the name of the second one, but they are absolutely confessions of an alcoholic or something like that. Something, yeah. I forget why. I, I can't even. I can't even see it. I can see the cover, but I can't see the title. Yeah, both of them or, are really good. Or if you watch her monologue, which Wishful Drinking. It's mm-hmm. just it's just incredible, and if and if you can find it, what is it where where the where George Lucas is 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 recognized by the AFI? Oh. Where she's like, George, I hope I slept with you to get that job because if I didn't, who the hell was that guy? 
Yeah. Like, all-time favorite <laughs> Carrie Fisher moment in the history of Carrie Fisher moments. <laughs> well, Zan, are you thinking Postcards from the Edge? No, no, no. That's that's her novel. I'm talking about her no. uh, her, her biography, like her biography, oh, her biography. Essay biographies. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. That's good cool. too. But the but the two books that were about her um, that she wrote as like an like an autobiography, like books of essays of autobiographical essays. Those are gold. They're absolute gold. Well, I'll, I'll definitely have to check those out for sure, Zan. And, you know, and to come off, you know, the point that you made and also Rachel will make, well, it's so weird that aside from Aunt Baru, Princess Leia is the only significant female character in this movie. As I thought it was odd because George Lucas apparently did draw a lot from Flash Gordon because he was supposed to do Flash Gordon. And they, he, in the end, he decided not to because he had a fight with De Laurentiis and he's like, I'm not doing this. And he went off to make Star Wars. So I thought maybe, you know, being a fan of the Flash Gordon franchise, we could have maybe had a General Carla character or similar, you know, a strong female aside from, you know, on the good side of the of the force, if you will. But, you know, we got Peter Cushing in that regard, so I won't complain too much. But I was a little bit upset that, you know, aside from Aunt Baru, she's the only sort of significant female character in this. That point aside... She very much, I think, like you were all saying, defies the stereotype of the princess. So she's very much that tomboy, prepared to act quicker than any of the guys are. You know, as Charles is mentioning, creating that exit with her blaster, which leads into the garbage compactor. And on the other hand, she does embody the strength and charisma of a strong leader and is very regal in that sense. And I can see why she would end up becoming an inspiration and role model for many women, as she has, she has very much evolved, to use a Janet Sussman term. And it's not just... Yeah, baby! <laughs> and it's not just put out there to be the love interest or the soppy girl in a boy's space treehouse. I actually uh, think it's safe to say she rules that treehouse. She's able to take down everybody, even someone as cocky and as macho as Han Solo, which I think says a lot. So, speaking of Mr. Solo, let's get to him. The then-not-yet-household name, Harrison Ford, of course, as Han Solo. And, of course, uh, uh, so when it comes to this, this, uh, this character who would become, you know, only Harrison Ford would become huge and this character would become huge. Holly, what are your thoughts on, on Han Solo? Oh, man. I mean, everything that you could ask for that's complete opposite of Luke. Cocky sure of himself running in not thinking about the consequences when he goes barreling down the hall of the Death Star with Chewie as a distraction and only in it for himself but then he he has that kind of softer side that he doesn't want anybody else to see but we know it's there and and has a heart of gold and then d- does decide to come back and do the right thing that he can be a part of this little band of rebels and that it might work out for him in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, it's very true. Yeah, I definitely think he does get the heart of gold later on for sure. We definitely do see that. And Charles, what about you? You know, you, are you, uh, I know often quotes that my a phrase has become very near and dear to my heart. Nazis, I hate these guys from, of course, Indiana <laughs> Jones. Um, but yeah, in his role, that's right. And in, in his role as Han Solo, you know, what are your thoughts on, on Harrison Ford and this character in this, is this introduction? Well, Nick, I've flown from one side of this galaxy to the other. I've seen a lot of strange stuff. 
But <laughs> one thing, the one thing that I, I love, absolutely adore in this movie is Han Solo. He is everything that my eight-year-old self wanted to be. A lot of a lot of people, a lot of kids, boys my age at the time, they all wanted to be Luke. They wanted to be the heroic Jedi Knight uh, with the light, the, the cool lightsaber. I wanted to be, you know, the scruffy looking nerf herder pirate who uh, had the blaster by his side, had Chewie, you know, watching his back and got to fly the cool Millennium Falcon. I thought that was I thought that was it. Harrison Ford just, you know, was just so damn charismatic. I mean, he, you know, he's he's throwing off all the quippy lines. He's the big rebel. He's he's the guy that gets to, um, you know, be a little bit more of a comic relief compared to Luke or Leia um, in a lot of, in a lot of scenes. And, you know, he's, he's that man of action. And as we know, you know, with just in films, like you just mentioned, like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Blade Runner or what have you, that, you know, Harrison Ford has that great lead action movie leading man. Um, capability and as well as being a great actor but but here you know he's just he's so damn charming he um he you know he's the guy that kind of um is initially you know he's very skeptical of when obi-wan is trying to train luke uh about the ways of the force only of course to turn around decades later and say well it's true all of it and that so um you know, he, he's, he's, you know, just kind of rolling along with it. He's looking out for himself. He's kind of used, uh, used to being on his own, just him and Chewie, um, you know, getting into one scrape or another. He's used to kind of flying literally by the seat of his pants. And uh, as a result, you know, he's become a little bit jaded, a little bit cynical. And, um, so he provides a very interesting counterpoint to Luke's youthful idealism because he is an older man, but he's not quite as old as Obi-Wan. So he's that nice little middle ground in a lot of ways. And um, he kind of sees Luke as, the, his, as almost like a younger brother by the end of the film. And, it, 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 and a great character turn moment for him, his own character arc in this movie for someone who starts off being so selfish and cynical about everything, especially about things like the rebellion against the empire, he's the one who comes in going, Yahoo flies in at the very last moment to help buy Luke um, time. Oh, you know, from being almost annihilated by his own father, ironically enough. And uh, let's it gives him that moment to uh, fire those two uh, torpedoes and, um, blow up the Death Star and help save the day. So someone who could have easily walk and walked away, taken his money and left, which initially he does, but then he has second thoughts and he comes back and decides that, okay, maybe these re rebels aren't so bad after all and um, does the right thing. So, um, so yeah, I just, I love Harrison Ford in this. He's, he, he's fantastic. And, um, you know, just uh, I never tire of watching him in this movie. And and also, you know, Charles, you and I actually talked about this, um, you know, previously. So you are going to stick to your guns, literally saying that it was Han who shot shot first, correct? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, that goes without saying. 
Yeah. I mean, I've got I've got the proof. You can't see this right now, but I've got my despecialized edition right here. That uh, as much as I George have it Lu- on VHS, Han shot yeah. first. As much as George yeah. Lucas would like to pretend this version doesn't exist, it exists. And yeah. those of us who watched Star Wars in the theater, and we know that that you know he shot Greedo first because that's the essence of of who Han was when we first meet him. He's that yeah. that very cold, you know, like um, you know ruthless um you know kind of scavenger um you know uh, opportunist in a lot of ways and uh you know he was going to kill somebody knowing that he was you know if he didn't kill them first he was going to be dead and so right. he he ruthlessly um, guns him down in that cantina takes out yeah. Greedo. so um and that's and then i think that was you know it's something that you know, obviously, that's something that I think Lucas and I differ on wildly here, because to me, that's the essence of who Han is when we first meet him. Well, you know what? Then I'll take that to the bank along with um, with Cisco Ramon's T-shirt saying Han shot first. So, you know, it's you and Cisco Ramon from The Flash. So I'm taking that as 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 I said, as, as gold. So I'm taking that to the bank for sure. And, and that's Rachel, the gold standard, Nick, right there. Yes, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Rachel, when it comes to you, what are your thoughts on Han Solo? Uh, I mean, Han is just—he's. You look up scoundrel in the in the dictionary, and that's whose face you see. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, he's just—he—he's—he's um, he's the kind—he's the kind of man that your mom or dad fears your their daughter to bring home. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe the maybe the fact that Alderaan gets destroyed has something to do with the fact of uh, Han and Leia getting together, <laughs> getting, getting married, and having a kid later. <laughs> her parents, her adopted parents, aren't around anymore. So, uh, <laughs> talk her out of it. Excuse me, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, he's just some of the best lines come from from Han and Harrison Ford, um, which is funny considering Harrison Ford hated the script. Absolutely hated the script. He hated the way the dialogue was written. Um, He was all like, you can write, you can type this, but you can't say it. Um, So, um, although the bit when they're, when they finally get to rescuing the princess and um, he has to, uh, talk on the the radio when they're like you know what's going on there and that mm-hmm. entire thing is it's not necessarily ad-libbed but he didn't like commit the script to memory um so it's like he's ad-libbing what's scripted if that makes sense mm-hmm. um so it's not exact but it's still essentially what george lucas wrote um because he wanted it to sound like han was making it up you know right there mm-hmm. and then um but um, you know, it's uh, Han's just a, a great character, and he's a good he 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 helps balance out the rest of the personalities um, because he, he's you know Luke Luke wants to do the right thing, but he's young and inexperienced, and therefore he doesn't know what his options are and what 
is you know what he and other people could be capable of doing you've got leia who you know she's still young but she's got way more experience you know she's been with the rebellion for quite a while again thank you uh star wars rebels um so and she's got experience when politics and the stuff that she learned from her her adoptive parents because they were both uh you know in in the the or at least her father was in the senate um so she's at least got some real world experience um but then you've got han who um at the end of the day probably wants to do the right thing but at the same time he knows that the world out there is very dangerous and um yeah the only person you really can depend on is yourself and therefore he's going to put his interest first um because he knows that uh he can't and we've seen when we've seen some of that in the the han solo movie um that you even you can trust people but sometimes they're going to break that trust and it's going to come back to bite you in the butt um so that's what his motivation is and it's it's a nice juxtaposition to to leia and luke um and they're more on the side of good um type of altruistic person out personality types um and again i'm glad that they were able to convince harrison ford to come back because i know that uh I, you know uh uh you know with alec guinness he got what he, he got what he seemingly wanted he got killed off and he only has to come back in very minor appearances for the other two movies unlike harrison ford who wanted han killed off and left that way and did not get it for years and years and years and years and years and years and years and, years and, years. <laughs> and then they still managed to convince him to come back one more time i don't know how many zeros are on that paycheck but it must have been enough mm, i i think so too and and zan you know when it comes to you, you know we talked recently about a character kind of similar to this in Rhett butler from gone with the wind um and you know when it comes to you zan what are your thoughts on um, on han solo and harrison ford i love han solo and Harrison Ford, but I probably love Han Solo more than I love Harrison Ford. Hmm. Um, it, I'm totally in love with Han Solo, but I can kind of take or leave Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> He's a fine-looking guy, but he, and he, I'm not watching a movie because Harrison Ford's in it. I'm watching a movie because uh, Han Solo's in it. Han, Han might be my favorite character in Star Wars. I've never really thought about it because I feel like that's like picking your children, picking mm-hmm. a favorite child. And... But but I really love Han Solo with his problematic his problematic uh, relationship issues aside. <laughs> again, written at a time and written by a man. I think he's probably much more evolved now. But anyway, I, I really love how complex this character is, and as little as we get to see him, he's in this movie. We don't see a ton about Han. We don't. He's he's definitely the second fiddle. Even though he's the the older, more confident character, but we know he's a smuggler. We know he's got problems. We know he's pissed off a bunch of people. We know he's got a best friend that would follow him to the ends of the earth. We know, and you know, I'm with Charles. He shot first, 100. percent That is not up for debate. Thank you. He's <laughs> yeah, right. 
he is he's he's cutthroat. I mean, he is definitely out for numero uno and a total mercenary. It, just like Princess Leia, Leia says, he's quite a mercenary. He is in it to make money. And as we find out later with his character, especially especially in The Force Awakens, that he's going to he's going to work with whoever is going to pay him. And he's just trying to survive. And, of course, we know now from what we've read about in other novels and what we've learned in other movies that Han Solo's had kind of a rough life. And he started out with the Empire and figured out pretty easily, wait, this is not where I need to be. I don't know where I need to be, but I need to not be here. So I think he has a lot of qualities that Finn has in the new movies where he's like um we just need to get the hell away from the empire like i don't i'm not gonna i don't want to join your i don't want to join your revolution sweetheart but i we just need to stay the hell away from the empire but at the end he figures out what's right and who who he needs to have in his corner because han doesn't really have a lot of What's the word I want to use? Any relationships that are really strong other than Chewbacca. Like I said, he's, you know, he's working with you and until you pay him, he's like, see ya, next time you have a check, call me. But I think he realizes that Han and Luke are fighting for something that, and he probably even thinks of it this way. Well, you know, the rebellion's probably going to benefit me more than it's not going to benefit me, so I should probably get down on this. So he's very he's very complex in that way. He's very out for himself, but at the same time he knows there's something even if he's not a particularly religious man, as Charles said, he's seen a lot of strange stuff, but he's never seen anything to make him believe that there's one all powerful force controlling everything. But he's still respectful of that. Even, you know, at the end when he's leaving and Luke is like, Why the hell are you going? You know they need you, you're a great pilot. He's like, Look, I got a death sentence. I got a I got a price on my head. Somebody's gonna kill me and bring me back to Job of the Hut. If I don't pay Job of the Hut at least fifteen thousand credits, you you gotta give me this one. And you know, he's thinking, I know I gotta pay this off, but I gotta go I gotta go back and fix this. They they probably could use my help. But and he's probably yeah, he's probably thinking of it. Again, he's been out for him own, his own his own self for so long because nobody else is that that's probably where he starts. But I think he does spiral out and figure out, okay, well, this is actually probably probably where I need to be. This is probably for the better good, the the, the greater good. And you know, we see it in the Christmas special. We see it in Battle at Ord Mandel. We see it in Return of the Jedi that he sticks with them with this price on his head for years. Because he knows it's the right thing to do. Eventually, it bites him in the ass, but they <laughs> they help him out. <laughs> they figure it out. You know, they 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 rescue him. And like I said, we see so much of this in this first movie. And Harrison Ford is is sort of perfect for for Han Solo because even though I like to think of it as Han Solo's shit eating grin, we know it's Harrison Ford's because we've seen it <laughs> in other things. We've seen it. You know, when he says, trust me, he could be anybody. He could be Han Solo. He could be Indiana Jones. <laughs> but he that, could be Deckard. <laughs> he could be Deckard. He could be, yeah, anything. He's got that grin that 
nobody else could be Han Solo but him. It's very true. I would say they're definitely kind of one and the same. I mean, I've loved Harrison Ford in so many movies, and here it's no different. I mean, I have to admit, seeing this after such a while I'd seen it, it was so weird to see him so young and without that scraggly beard and hat, which would, of course, become synonymous with Indiana Jones. But that said, I would consider him, you know, the lovable macho jock who seemingly does not care about anything but making a profit and saving his own skin, possibly Chewbacca. I think him and uh, Star-Lord would get on very, very well. Seeing seeing him and Luke together is pretty much that kind of odd couple moment, as while Luke wants to be more stealthy and secretive, you have Han being kind of the Rambo approach. So, you know, and I think, you know, to use a Green Lantern reference, he would be a great guy gardener for listeners who get that reference. I think he would have been a great guy gardener if it had been a Green Lantern film. As for the most part, you know, he is on board simply because he was hired. But by movie's end, you know, you see there's a bond of friendship between him and Luke, as Charles was referring to the almost because almost a a brotherly relationship forming there. And, you know, of course, then we get the whole thing between him and Leia as well, which does is developed as the movies progress. I do think in part when it once again, when it comes to Lucas and his love for Flash Gordon, it almost seems to me that, um, this is, is very much that kind of Flash Gordon-y character, at least comic book-wise, because he's very daring and adventurous and just loves to stick it to the man when he can. So I kind of got that. I, I kind of got where, you know, Lucas is also love for Flash Gordon when it came to creating a character like Han Solo. On the other hand, he's very much a scoundrel, as, you know, was mentioned. It is hinted that he does partake and has partaken of shady deals throughout the galaxy. So... I definitely in my in my head I'd love to see Star early Star Lord and Han Solo get together for some <laughs> crime caper or something. That would be it'd be Ooh, great. Fun. That would be something. Can they be naked? <laughs> yes, I'd really like that if they were both naked. <laughs> Chris Pratt and Harrison Ford together naked. Okay, I guess well, Han Solo would point and laugh at Star Lord. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so too. That would be kind of like that would definitely be you know a bumbling adversarial relationship for sure. Yes, indeed. Yeah, oh. and, and Huey yeah. would be just there, like, oh my goodness. Yeah, because now you know, too. since it's all, all Disney, you never know what, where they might go. Since Disney owns Marvel and Star Wars and stuff, you never know. So, before we do get to the dark side of the table, guys, I think it's fair to give a mention to our three full costume characters who've become incredibly iconic in you know through the years. We have, of course, Anthony Daniels as C-3PO, Kenny Baker as R2D2, and Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca. So, Charles, when it comes to you, you know, any thoughts on these? Should we say three uh, fully? costumed characters well obviously um these characters are you know for being such you know supporting characters they're not exactly the primary characters in the story they don't get to do the heavy lifting of the action there's there's moments here and there but by and large you know they're, they're kind of in a lot of ways they're very thankless roles but it's to it's to all of their credit you know to anthony daniel's credit kenny baker's Peter Mayhew's especially, that they take what could be such a thankless role and turn it into something a little bit more. They, you know, they, they bring their own individual charm, uh, especially with 3PO and R2. They have this, this kind of almost like an odd couple, um, almost, um, you know, uh, I, I want to say, you know, like even giving it, I mean, I know this is kind of, you know, like maybe, looking back from the, the 21st century a little bit, but it's almost like, it's almost very much like a gay relationship with these two. Mm-hmm. 
that that you know three PO is very prissy. He's you know very again it's like a very odd couple like relationship. You know with three PO being the the Felix Unger of the two. They that everything you know there, there's a protocol to everything. Um, you know he he doesn't understand uh, you know all the all the chaos around him. And then meanwhile you have R two who is this feisty little droid who, um, you know, speaks his mind, so to speak, even though he can't really speak, but he speaks through beeps and chirps and whistles and whatnot. But, um, but he definitely, you know, there's a personality there. And um, the, and the two banner, you know, for, for really being only one-sided conversations because we can only understand 3PO, um, it's, it's a credit to 3PO and R2's dynamic that, that they they do have this great on screen relationship that they you know that they look out for each other even though three PO will constantly insult R two and maybe vice versa um, they still care about one another and you know especially you know you get to see that at the at the very end of the film where after um, Luke quote unquote loses R two in in the in the Death Star trench that um, you know. 3PO is right there when R2 is as horribly damaged as he is, is lowered down and quickly volunteers like, look, if there's, you know, any of my circuits or gears will help, I'll gladly donate them. Mm-hmm. So, so whatever animosity 3PO may present, it's obviously that it's obvious that he cares for R2 and uh, they've known each other for a long time, probably even longer than 3PO remembers since he's had his memory wiped, as it turns out. <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously we kind of wonder about R2 that presumably he still knows everything. Just yeah. can't voice it, right? Yeah. And, nobody's uh, asked. Nobody's <laughs> asked. Yeah. Exactly. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. I think he's a little bit smarter than he lets on. Like, I, this is going to open up a whole new can of worms if I leap out the wrong thing. Yeah. yeah, this might screw up the whole trilogy. Or you know <laughs> I I gotta be I gotta I gotta keep everything secret. So um but but and Chewie is just, you know, uh this lovable sidekick to Han. He mm-hmm. um is a part bodyguard, part friend, part you know, just this part comic relief in a lot of ways that again like again like three PO and R2 um, Han and Chewie have kind of a bantering relationship, but I think it comes for a much more um, sense of fondness for one another. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and you know, and, and Han sees Chewie as this as one is probably his closest friend at this point. Before you know, obviously encountering Luke or Leia, and and they're very loyal to each other. So. Um, you know, Chewie's right there by Han's side through every scrape that he's in, often helping getting him out of those scrapes. And, you know, you probably couldn't ask for a more loyal friend than Chewbacca. I, I think we definitely all need a Chewbacca in our lives, Charles, for uh-huh. sure. And and Rachel, when it comes to you, what did you make of this trio? Um, well, I, you know, <laughs> you know I'm one of those people that thoroughly enjoys the, the meme, you know, whenever it gets pass around the internet that R2 is the most foul mouth character in Star Wars. Star Wars yes. Down those lines. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, all three roles are kind of like what Charles was saying. They're, they're kind of thankless because 
we think of the the character but not the person who played them because we don't see their face um which uh you know uh, and unfortunately we lost uh two out of the three now um we only have anthony daniels left um but he still, and yeah, Anthony Daniels has the, um, the I guess the, the little note next to his name that you know he's the one person who's appeared in almost every he's he's appeared in every one of the trilogies. Mm-hmm. Um, so every um, film in the Skywalker saga. Yeah, yeah. every film yeah. of the Skywalker saga. So. Um, you know, there's no one else who can who can say that. <laughs> um, so uh, he uh, and he's he's still you know he goes to conventions and stuff. So um, you know he we've got him to help you know represent the fandom and and everything. Um, and uh, I I mean all three of them I don't know how they handled the costumes you know at least at least yeah anthony daniels and uh peter mayhew could actually get up and walk around even if it was you know somewhat difficult poor kenny baker you know he'd be put inside the r2d2 and sometimes they would forget he's in there Oh, no. And like they would break uh-huh. for like lunch and forget he's in there and leave him. <laughs> so, uh, guys, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I can't imagine you know, being essentially probably what you know equates to being in a trash can, <laughs> uh-huh. trying to to give this this character a personality. Um, and and he does. I mean, R two definitely has a distinct personality, and that's that's. A, I don't know if that was intended right off the bat, or if that's just something you know a happy thing that happened. And now all droids, pretty much all droids uh, in the Star Wars universe, have some semblance of a personality. Uh, yeah, even if it's not necessarily a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some are very stupid. I'm looking at you, Clone Clone War era mm-hmm. droids. Roger, Roger, flankers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Stupid. Uh, so, um, yeah, just all three of them deserve, I think, way more praise than they have probably gotten mm-hmm. uh, outside of. I'm sure the. You know, the real rabid fans. Yeah, I'm sure there are people out there that are like, R2-D2 is my favorite. And, I'm, you know, I'm sure that Kenny Baker appreciated that when he was still mm-hmm. with us. But, you know, mm-hmm. it is kind of a thankless job being being uh, a character actor like that where you never get to see their face. Mm-hmm. True. Yes, indeed. But, you know, definitely great, great characters indeed. And, and Zan, you know, I know that you're a big fan of, you know, creatures and costuming and what have you what were your thoughts on these three characters i i love these three characters they are such charming additions to this universe and charles i also think of them as an odd couple but i also think of them as sort of a burton ernie type <laughs> of a dynamic yeah. actually, where you have yeah. the that's the one fair. who's really uptight, and then the one who's all like, "Let's do this," you know. Three like, <laughs> yes. PO is obviously Bert. Three yeah. PO is Bert, and <laughs> yeah. and R two D two is 
Ernie with his whole like, let's go riding off into the desert. We just crash landed. Let's go here. You know, he's very like, I know what I'm doing. Let's do this thing. And mm-hmm. and I, I do love that the late great Kenny Baker was R2D2 because it really does add a sort of human element to him. Um just just the fact that there's a guy in there making doing the controls and mm-hmm. even even if it's not his voice or anything like that, I just I, I love that there's a like a human element to him and Kenny Baker was was so wonderful. Um, Charles and I have talked about him <laughs> a lot after talking about the Elephant Man, and um, he was one of the sweetest people I've ever met at a convention. And I I love that Lucas did that. That's one of the best things about Star Wars is the physicalness of it. About all it was, you know, before CGI. So there's models and people and dressed up in costumes and things like that. And the, and these our three main costume characters are. Certainly no exception. Anthony Daniels is pretty much the voice of Star Wars, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Because, Rachel, like you were saying, he's the only actor to have been in all nine of the main Skywalker saga movies. He was in The Clone Wars. And he's in other stuff. Like, you know, everybody's in the, in the holiday special. But, you know, he's in that. And he's on the Star Wars Christmas album. Like, that's... It's R two D two and C three PO, and you know, unfortunately, when you need R two D two in some audio, you don't need Kenny Baker. You just need the beeps and the whistles. But if you need C three PO, you need Anthony Daniels. If you've ever, you know, I have, you know, because COVID hit before I was able to get there. I have not been to Disney World with the new Star Wars World, but back in the nineties when they first had Star Tours. Mm-hmm. It's C three PO. I mean, so anywhere you it go, it still is. Yeah, it still is. I'm just, I'm just saying. There's more now. <laughs> yeah. But back in the day when it was when when we first got some Star Wars in, yeah. even World, once they when they updated Star Tours, yeah. it's still C three PO. Still so. him. Yeah, it's still him. <laughs> so he's very, very much the voice of Star Wars. Um, trivia note: one of the voices in. Star Tours was also Paul Rubens, and he was removed after he was found in that movie theater in uh, yes. Sarasota. Was it Sarasota or Tampa? I forget. Either one. He was removed from that after his little unpleasantness in the movie theater. Anyway, um, so there's something very endearing about him for that reason, because he's he is kind of prissy. He is kind of bitchy about things, like, you know, it's giving you the odds and being very pessimistic and but he's C-3PO. You can't help but absolutely adore C-3PO. And the two of them together are iconic. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you look at the the story of Star Wars, the record that we had before we had videotape as readily available <laughs> as, mm-hmm. we, as we did in the 80s. But in the 70s, we had the the story of Star Wars, which was narrated by the late great Roscoe Lee Brown and that's who's on the cover the two of them in uh in the desert and if you were to i mean if you put them in silhouette if it's just like a black cutout you're going to know that it's C3PO and R2D2 mm-hmm. yeah and i think they're i think they're wonderful characters just sort of i mean this whole thing starts because of them yep you know that they're the ones R2's the one that has the has the plans. 3PO is the one that comes with him on the, you know, because they are, they are a, a, a unit together. And Luke finds them. That's how Luke meets 
Han Solo, bringing him, bringing them back to Princess Leia is how they meet Princess Leia. Like the whole thing starts with those two characters. And I don't think we can, you know, we have to really give some credit where credit is due for that. You can't discount their importance <laughs> to this right. universe. Mm-hmm. And they're part of some major plans too. Like Luke's, you know, I didn't, I, I'm sorry, I keep going into other movies, but it's hard not to see Star Wars as one big thing. Mm-hmm. But they are how they get into Jabba's palace to get Han Solo back. You yeah. know, they're, they, they are how they get the ships working. They are how they get to know where Leia's prison cell is. I mean, all, they, they're right. how every, they save everybody's life in the trash compactor. These yeah. are very majorly important characters. And these are the droids who fix the hyperdrive system to get out of Bespin. Exactly. They fix the hyperdrive to get out of Bespin. They, uh, there's so much going on with, with them. They're the ones that get the Ewoks on board. Yes. You know? Yes. Ha, you know, C-3PO being the golden god that he is, is mm-hmm. the one that gets them in with the Ewoks, and that's how they bring down the Empire. And then so, R2 adding the sound effects while 3PO is that's telling the, the story of how they got there. That's the that that I want I want a story of Star Wars where it's just that. Where it's just C3PO in the Ewok language just telling the story of Star Wars with the C3 with the with the R2D2 noise in the background. Mm. So they're they're extremely important characters and and it's it's just a, it's just an absolute sin to to discount them in any in any way shape or form. Chewbacca one of my again, one of my favorites. He's so lethal and so lovable at the same time that he's again a very. I think he's a very rich character. Of course, we find out later that he has a life debt to Han Solo because he was a slave of the Empire, and I think that's the biggest crime of the holiday special, mm-hmm. and it's being taken out of canon. Because the best thing about the holiday special is the fact that it is about Chewbacca's homeworld. It's about Chewbacca's family. And the worst thing about the holiday special is that now we don't talk about, you know, Nalan Lumpy and his family. And we don't talk about Life Day. And, you know, because that was one of the greatest things about that was, oh, finally we get a Chewbacca story. And, again, we were supposed to get more of a Chewbacca story originally in... Return of the Jedi, when they wanted to make the Ewok planet Kashyyyk, which is the Wookiee planet. So I feel like he's gotten the shaft a lot in these stories, which is why I like some of the, like the Kevin J. Anderson novels and um, the Young Jedi Knights. Yeah, and just, right. And, you know, where, or even the Han Solo novels where you just get Mm -hmm. more Chewbacca. Yeah. And you can't, again, you can't say enough good things about the human factor of it, which was the late, great Peter Mayhew. Um, that there was somebody in there. There was somebody behind... Th- those eyes are real. That there's somebody mm-hmm. behind that. And um, I can't think of the name of the guy who's playing him now, but there's something great about the fact that he is a guy in a costume. Mm-hmm. That there is a humanity to him. And he is very loving for Han Solo. He will literally kill someone if they try if they try something with Han Solo. Mm-hmm. But he's he's very kind and he's very sweet but he will pull your arms out of your sockets if you lose. <laughs> That's a Wookiee win. There's, there's just so much heart to Chewbacca that when I saw uh, The Force Awakens, obviously the Han Solo death scene ripped my heart 
right yes. out of my ribcage mm-hmm. with its bare hands. Uh-huh. And che- Chewie's reaction is the worst. That's the yes. worst. That is the absolute mm-hmm. worst because you can imagine how hard it must have been for Chewbacca to see this little boy who he's known since he was a baby not only turn bad, but kill his father, who was uh-huh. also Chewbacca's best friend. Just just the inner torment of Chewbacca. That's just heartbreaking. And it's because we have this history with Chewbacca about what an incredibly loyal character he is and how wonderful. It's same thing when Leia dies. When he's pounded on the ground, I'm like, oh god, somebody get me out of this theater, I'm gonna lose my mind. Uh-huh. It's so sad because whenever if if you become close to Han, Han and Chewie are a package deal. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and Chewbacca's gonna live to be like two hundred. So he's you know Wookiees have a long lifespan, so anybody who is in Han Solo's life from you know, Ben Solo to Ben Solo's grandkids to Ray and her grandkids, just anybody that is going to be with Chewbacca, if if he likes you, you're in for life. And I I, I really admire the, admire that character. He is a little violent, but I do I do admire his heart quite a bit. Well, it, it, you know, you definitely made some some wonderful points there for sure, Zan. And, and Holly, when it comes to you, you know, I I, I uh, heard you know chime in there a little bit. So I'm, I'm assuming you're a big fan of these three. Oh yes, I mean, and sometimes the hijinks the three of them would get up to later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with three PO when he's disassembled, trying to start hot movies, but you know, giving Chewbacca some grief, but then. Chewie realizing, hey, these guys are a help, even though I do want to disassemble them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and and like Zan was saying, once you get to know Han, you know Chewie, you're in. Once you are a part of that tribe, look out. <laughs> you hurt them, I hurt you. And I mean, R2 and 3PO, package package deal, and even for as much as R2 pushes 3PO's buttons, I don't think, even though 3PO threatened to leave R2 out in the desert to rust, I don't think he would have gone very far. <laughs> <laughs> he would have waited for him to catch up. <laughs> they obviously can't survive in the desert without each other. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that, yeah, for sure. I mean, and you know what? Me coming from you know Jim Henson's Creature Shop, which I know is is a you know different kind of kind of world, but loving those kind of creatures and 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 all the kind of practical effects, I very much gravitated towards these three. And you know, Charles was pointing out the fact of the shall we say um, old kind of married couple that RC3PO and R2D2, and I totally got that dynamic and. I love these two. I mean, especially C-3PO is, uh, is just a wonderful kind. Anthony Daniels does such a wonderful job of playing him and the emotions. I mean, because on the, the actual face is totally emotionless. I mean, we don't really sort of see any changes in the emotions, but you can feel them. It kind of reminded me a little bit of what Hugo Weaving does with uh, V in V for Vendetta, where you never see, you can't see any physical changes in the expressions, but you feel them. And that's what I really got from C-3PO for sure. I mean, love, love. Love, love this character. R2D2 is, is just fantastic. And, 
you know, when Rachel mentioned the fact of uh, people forgetting about poor Kenny Baker, I was like, oh man, you know, that's terrible. I feel so bad for him because it's just a he's a he's a, he's a wonderful character. And Chewbacca, well, I mean, Chewbacca is just uh, so lovable. I, and you know, when when uh, that's the fact of let the Wookiee win, I always l- chuckle when I see that scene because you kind of see Chewbacca kind of putting his hands behind his back, kind of looking like, yeah, I can break your 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 tear your arms off if I want to. So. But he is just has he's just a, such a good natured guy. He's that typical kind of gentle giant, which I think is wonderful about Chewbacca. And I think it, Star Wars would not have been the huge success that it was if they, we hadn't had these three incredibly iconic characters. So, guys, let's get to the dark side of the table here before we get to actually our big bad. I did touch up on him a little, and of course our listeners out there who are thriller, hammer horror fans will not be surprised to know that this next character we're talking about became best friends with the likes of Vincent Price and Sir Christopher Lee. I wish I had been in the uh, in the room to see these three together. Of course, Whovians know his name as well. I'm of course talking about Peter Cushing as the, as Grand Moff Tarkin. So, Rachel, when it comes to you, what are your thoughts on on Grand Moff, Moff Tarkin and Peter Cushing? Uh. He's he's just kind of like he's kind of like Alec Guinness, where I think they just needed someone with some some gravitas and some kind of real serious acting chops to portray such a yeah such a really like evil person. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, like we, it, it kind of sets the precedence too that we joke about it, it with Star Wars in general. It's like, oh, you have a British accent, bad guy. Yes. So <laughs> it's true. All the Empire, they're all Brits. It's crazy. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Darth Vader being like the one big exception. Uh, so, and that's well, we'll get into that. Uh, <laughs> um. But uh, yeah, no. Peter Peter Cushing is uh, he's 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 kind of scary, um, really. Which is is funny because according to Carrie Fisher, like Peter Cushing was anything but, and she actually struggled to be like pissed off at him as Leia because she, you know the two of them got along so well off camera. Um, it, he was just such a, a you know a, a kind fun person to to, to talk to um so uh I, I thought that was kind of funny um but and i'm you know for for what it's worth i know people complained um the the you know the uncanny valleyness of it i guess or whatever but i i'm glad that uh cushing's estate did allow them to to use his likeness uh to create the essentially the full you know digital version of him for uh rogue one uh so um because it, it that just wouldn't have been the same it wouldn't have been the same without Grandma tarkin he's just uh it, for as much as people equate the empire with the emperor and darth vader um, Grand Moff Tarkin just kind of being, you know, the first kind of head of the first Death Star. It's like, you know, we wouldn't have had the story without him. Um, so he's just, uh, he's a, a fun, fun character to watch because he's just, you know, he's 
evil and slimy, but not, you know, he's not like the Emperor or Darth Vader, but he's still, you know, this is not a guy you want to mess with. Very well said. And, and Zan, what about you? What were your thoughts on Peter Cushing and Grand Moff Tarkin? This grosses out my husband whenever I say it, but he is the <laughs> second hottest person in this movie, in my opinion. <laughs> and it's because I did grow up with the Hammer movies, and I think, I think Peter Cushing is unbelievably dashing. I think he's a very, very handsome man. Um, growing up with Hammer movies, with a few exceptions, you think of Peter Cushing as the good guy. So for him to be the bad guy in this was very interesting. I thought as a as a kid, like, oh wait, it's that's Van Helsing. He's I'm supposed to be rooting for him. Like what what <laughs> This is this is different. This is not how I usually do this. And I felt like he brought you know, the the thing about Peter Cushing is is his those wonderful high cheekbones. So and that, that piercing stare, which can be romantic or terrifying. And in this one he does a great job of having it being terrifying. He adds a real Nazi quality to the mm-hmm. empire because mm-hmm. we are in a part of an empire that doesn't have necessarily have a lot of clones left anymore. Um, the Imperial Navy did start drafting people. And this is again, I'm sorry for nerding out on you guys, but this is my knowledge <laughs> from novels and role playing games and all that stuff. But yeah, the Imperial Navy drafted people to be uh-huh. in the Empire, but he is one of those good examples of, I'm here because I want to be here. You know, one of those one of those Nazis, unlike somebody like, you know, Gert Froby, who was a Nazi because he kind of had to be. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I had to join the Nazi party, but I really just wanted to be an actor and be in Goldfinger. Um, but then there are also other people that are like, yeah, I was a Nazi because I really was into this. I really liked what they stood for, and I really wanted to to do this. He has no qualms about killing an entire planet of people just to advance his beliefs and his agenda. He has no qualms about torturing people. He has no qualms about sending squadrons off to their death. He's so freaking evil in this. And again, like I said before about Alec Guinness, consummate professional. Somebody like, you know, we don't have a lot of Oscar nominations for Peter Cushing because... (laughs) We don't have a lot of movies that were Oscar quality for Peter Cushing, but he was an absolute, absolute professional in all of them. It doesn't matter how cheesy you might think your gothic hammer horror movie is. He's going to bring 100% to the table because he is an actor, and that's what he does. And even if it's Dracula 1972 AD or Twins of Evil or some of those really kind of weird pervy ones, that's not Peter Cushing's issue he's not going to take issue with that he's going to take issue with his there's a there's a story about peter cushing in one of the movies and i forget which one it is but they decided later to put in a rape scene oh and peter cushing was like this is ridiculous because my character and this woman would not have interacted the way they did throughout the rest of the movie if if this had happened and so he's very conscious of character and very conscious of the job he's doing and a movie like this where you have an unknown director. I mean, yeah, he had directed 
this lovely little nostalgia picture, Where Were You in 62, with American mm. Graffiti. He'd done his college project, which was THX 1138, which is one of those sci-fi movies from the 60s that is, 60s and early 70s, that is gorgeous but boring. There's, there's not a lot under George Lucas's belt. As a writer, as a director, he's not the name George Lucas is now. None of our main characters are the name they are now. We have Alec Guinness and we have Peter Cushing. And when you have a movie like this that has that... Oh, they bring a validity to your project. Because no matter, like I said, in the case of, of Alec Guinness, no matter how stupid they think it is, they're going to give you everything that they can for this character. Uh And Peter Cushing is a, is a perfect example of the ultimate consummate professional actor. Peter Cushing, like you said, Nick, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee and Vincent Price all cut from the same cloth, all famous for being in movies that are not that great, but Mm -hmm. that they are great in. It saddens me that Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee are both in the star Wars universe, but never together. I would have loved to have loved that. Oh, that would that would have been an awesome team up. Oh, that would have been fantastic. Oh. Yeah. But then would've you would have been... had Cushing trying to stay Christopher Lee. So you know. <laughs> I don't True. know why you're saying that like it's a problem, Charles. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> like can you imagine like that pissing contest between Moff Tarkin and Count Dooku like for <laughs> for the <laughs> Emperor's attention? I mean yeah. And that would have been so playing great. the puppet master trying to get them to dance. Oh, that would have been something. Oh my gosh. I mean, that is, that is, that is the saddest thing about Christopher Lee being in the prequels is that it was too late to have Peter Cushing in them as well. So yeah, I can't, I can't I'll talk all day about how much I love Peter Cushing. So I'll stop. <laughs> well, but it's always, it's always wonderful things that you bring, Zan, for sure. I mean, we love, I love, you know, all these, all these uh, little nuggets that you, that you, you mentioned for sure. And, and Holly, when it comes to you, you know, you, I know being a, a Whovian and what have you, you know, what, what did you think of, of Peter Cushing and, and the character of Grand Moff Tarkin? I was first introduced to Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin. Then I kind of discovered the hammer and then I discovered the Doctor Who with him in it. To see him kind of move from mild-mannered to this villain, it was just like, wow, this is someone you don't want to mess with. He means business. And just done so well, I mean, and he's not scenery-chewing. I mean, you can kind of say Vader is, but then he isn't. But Vader has that more menacing power, while Tarkin has that menace, but it's more cool and calculating and more calm than Vader. And just how Vader understands kind of the power struggle and lets Tarkin, in a way, kind of control him from that one scene where they're in the that boardroom and mm. Vader's force choking one of the cronies and Tarkin's like Vader release him and then Vader does I mean Vader could have just sat there and killed the guy but no he listened (laughs) so I mean just for now for now yeah I mean (laughs) I mean I mean just brilliantly played by Peter Cushing for Tarkin and like Rachel I'm glad that the estate I didn't really think too much of an uncanny valley, but having him in Rogue One, it just made everything just that much 
it brings it more full circle mm. leading sure. into a new hope oh yes and and then of course you know when we do get to then discuss uh, uh, the empire strikes back we will see that darth vader is much more uh, kind of trigger finger happy when it comes to just killing people off at random um mm-hmm. but but yeah. but but charles when it comes to you what are your thoughts on grand moff talking and peter cushing well like uh like holly i also came in the the opposite way from Zan on this one because uh, you know I saw obviously watching Star Wars when I was eight and that's what got me into seeing Peter Cushing in the Hammer horror films and the you know and later in Doctor Who and the Daleks and and Daleks Invasion of Earth twenty one fifty that you know and it just amazed me you know, especially just having watched Doctor Who and the Daleks this past week. Uh, as part of my, you know, kind of on my to watch pile of, mm. of Blu-rays and DVDs that, um, that I just, I'm so impressed with his range as an actor. And I think he's a very underrated actor in a lot of ways, especially um, like here with Tarkin, you know, he's, he's very compelling. He's, he's like Holly mentioned, he's, he's one of the few characters that can actually kind of sort of keep Vader on his leash a little bit. Um, I think he knows not to push him too far, but he knows how to push him just the right amount that he doesn't end up at the opposite end of a force stranglehold himself. And, um, you know, it just, I talked a little bit earlier about the, that scene with Leia where she stands up to Tarkin and, and with Vader in the room and, and, but Tarkin is just so, you know, he, he's, Again, he, he he is definitely that that authoritative, um, commanding fascist that you know, that that makes just for such a great villain, and very Nazi like, like a lot of you have said. And so you know he he's willing to sacrifice. Doesn't even give you know one one moment's thought to killing everyone, an entire planet of people, to further his agenda. So that, that that makes him a very scary, very dangerous character, but ultimately he turns out to be a very flawed character because okay. his arrogance, in a yeah. lot of ways, because it's his downfall. It's, it is his downfall because you know you've, he's has has like guy after guy walking up to him going, "Sir, we've analyzed the, their attack pattern and there seems to be a danger," and Tarkin's attitude is like, "Evacuate in our moment of triumph." Triumph, yeah, and it's like, yeah. Because if you want, if, uh, you know, it's looking pretty bad and, you know, uh, you know, just it kind of shows that how flawed he was ultimately as a leader and why, you know, his it automatic it, it, it cost him not only the, the Death Star, but his own life as a result because uh, of his unwillingness to objectively analyze the situation from a tactical perspective he it was more of his ego in a lot of ways and his lust for power and intimidation and cruelty that uh that ultimately led to his downfall and um and it's a credit to peter cushing again who's just you know with that that big caved in skull like head that he has um that that makes him so creepy and menacing as a villain and um and uh, just a, it's just a, a incredible, compelling, and understated, um, under and underappreciated villain in in Star Wars. 
he he is very much an underappreciated villain. I mean, I'm actually among those Whovians who actually did enjoy him as, the, of course, the Doctor in the, the two movies that you mentioned, Charles, of course, Doctor Who and the Daleks and Daleks Invasion Earth to 2150. And of course, being a Hammer Horror enthusiast, I've seen him in all the appearances he has made. And in my opinion, he is the best Van Helsing and best Baron Frankenstein ever. Those, those geeking out moments aside, this character, you know, like, like you guys were mentioning, is your perfect space Nazi and then some. It seems like he's one of the only people who actually has any sort of control over Vader or whom Vader will even consider or take into consideration without finger neck pinching him. Mm-hmm. And that, which I think says a lot because he's a mere mortal and he certainly feels menacing just like any power hungry modern day dictator who may have like a hot finger on a doomsday button because he pretty much has the Death Star at his disposal. And so it kind of reminds me of this kind of dictator who could, you know, set off atomic bombs at just like the, uh, at any given moment, it was a pity to see him go, as I think he very much represents why the Empire is so hated. But of course, we will, of course, be introduced to the Emperor and what have you in, in later movies. But I absolutely love this chap to death for everything he, Peter Cushing has brought to the cinematic world. But especially Grand Moff Tarkin is a fantastic villain. So... Let's get to our big bad here at his debut and a character that would become enormous in mainstream history. Of course, the late great David Prowse as Darth Vader, who actually was chosen by Lucas after he saw him as Julian in The Clockwork Orange. And this character, of course, is voiced by a certain guy that you might know, James Earl Jones, who also was in Doctor Strangelove and is the voice of Mufasa in The Lion King. So, Zan, I know this character is near and dear to your heart. So, what are your thoughts on Darth Vader? Darth Vader is one of the most terrifying characters in the history of film. And that is in no small part to the late, great Ralph McQuarrie, who is the artist who came up with the preliminary designs for Darth Vader. And you can actually see somebody that looks a lot like an original design for Darth Vader in an American werewolf in London. There's a scene where David is having a nightmare and where his family is just at home. They're watching the Muppet show. And then these, these monsters come in. They, they have like humanoid animal faces and machine guns and they just murder his entire family. And one of them has like a Darth Vader pith helmet. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, it's just absolutely terrifying. And even to this day, again, I'm going to skip to another movie, the scene in Empire Strikes Back where Luke is on Dagobah and he goes into the cave to face himself. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's quiet and he's there by himself. And then all of a sudden you hear his breathing. I I still, Mm -hmm. my heart, my heart jumps when I see that scene, um, Darth Vader is, or even in, I, when we bought our house and was able to get a subwoofer, (laughs) 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 which is not something you want to do in an apartment. If you, if you like, if you want your neighbors to like you. Um, so because I don't have neighbors against a wall anymore, I bought a subwoofer and what I tested my subwoofer on was the end of rope one where Vader boards the ship and it's, it's quiet uh-huh. and then you, then you hear that breathing and then you hear the, you know, you hear the, uh-huh. the lightsaber go on, but that breathing is just so terrifying. Like if I heard that in my house, I would wet myself and pass out. Uh-huh. And I, 
I've kind of got a similar story. That's similar. the one. Yep. I kind of have a similar story to use then with the Darth Vader freakout. Wisconsin Dells has like a wax museum. And I yes, it does. <laughs> so I must have been like third or fourth grade. So I'm coming around the corner not knowing. And I think they must have had it motion censored because all of a sudden I hear that breathing. And I am face to face with their mannequin of Darth Vader and then R2-D2 and C-3PO are in the corner. I'm just like, <gasps> oh, it's, it's horrifying because it's, hi, it's someone hi. you, <laughs> it's someone you know. I'm I mean, like, uh, yeah, yeah, black guy, black, uh, droid, Darth Vader. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I would probably be doing that in my forties. Like if I turned the corner and saw that, I'd be like, Oh God, let's, let's get out of this room. And <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. He's terrifying. And it, and it's mm-hmm. due in full to Ralph McQuarrie's design and mm-hmm. the stature brought to that character by both David Prowse and James Earl Jones. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. David Prowse, uh, like like you said, was Julian in A Clockwork Orange and was chosen for that role because he was a bodybuilder. He was a weightlifter and bodybuilder. And so he mm-hmm. could lift the old man in the wheelchair. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's where he got where that's where he got that role. And David Prowse is responsible for our Superman. My mm-hmm. Superman in my mm-hmm. opinion, for, which is Christopher Reeve. Christopher he Reeve was his kind of personal a, trainer. Yeah, Christopher mm-hmm. Reeve was just kind of a tall, lanky goofus <laughs> until David Prowse got a hold of him and David Prowse turned him into a god among men and that, so we have David Prowse to thank for the most terrifying character to come out of the 70s and the most beloved character to come out of the 70s <laughs> um, the, the, the physical stature that David Prowse brings to this character is, is cannot be overlooked because the way he walks into a room and even, even the costume design with that, with that cape that flows and just how he walks into a room and just immediately sucks the life out of everything and just makes everybody terrified. Um, just him standing there with, you know, with, uh, um, who, who is that, that he's, that he's choking? Um, oh. it's, uh, uh, General Antilles. Yeah. Um, He's got General Antilles up in the air, and even when he's in the in the boardroom, and he just he just does that little finger thing, and starts starts choking people. Just hey, shut up about you know about my religion, jerk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's me, force a. <laughs> yeah, he's he's really really terrifying, and then you have a voice like James Earl Jones that is so commanding, you know, from everything to um, no, I am your father to this is CNN. You yeah. stop whatever <laughs> you're doing and you listen. He's on that short list of people that I was like, I would listen to you read the phone book. I would listen mm-hmm. to you read a recipe for instant coffee. Like, I don't <laughs> care what it is, yes. but I would listen to you do anything. And 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 he he's so great because he can be so terrifying with that voice and so hilarious with that voice. You know, I always assumed you made love with your bathers. I do. You know, just things like that. He's, he's, he's amazing. And just to have those two together, you know, I know there's the controversy about how David Pross wasn't always Darth Vader and stuff like that. But I think the two of them really made the blueprint for this character what it is to be as terrifying as it was. Terrifying to mm-hmm. a complete total generation. So, yeah, three mm-hmm. people 
completely necessary for Darth Vader, Ralph McQuarrie, David Prowse, and James Earl Jones. Mm-hmm. I love that for sure. And, and Holly, what about you? What are your thoughts on Darth Vader? You know, after having heard that that uh, anecdote where you were freaked <laughs> out by the at the Wax Museum. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, he was. He's not somebody you want to mess around with. I mean, when he burst through that door on the Tantive with the stormtroopers, it's just like okay. And then he starts choking General Antilles. It's like, all right, he's not someone you want to mess with. And, I mean, hopping movies to the end of Rogue One, he's more terrifying in that. And then knowing what the lead-up is to A New Hope, it's just like, wow. I always felt like the Darth Vader we saw in Rogue One was the Darth Vader that we who were kids when Star Wars came out were now ready for. Like, he's the real Darth right. Vader, and we weren't mm-hmm. ready to see him be that brutal until yes. we were adults. <laughs> Ex- yes, exactly. I mean, it just, and then to find out the whole backstory and how he came to be and letting his anger get the better of him. I mean, almost to, almost to bring in another movie the Marty McFly and being called chicken. (laughs) (laughs) This is Darth Vader letting the anger, even though letting his weakness call him chicken and letting the dark side get the better of him and letting it out full force. Well, that's, that's a great reference there. Holly love that. And, and Charles, what about you? What are your thoughts on Darth Vader? Well, I mean, it's pretty much the understatement of century to say that, Darth Vader was an iconic villain for mm-hmm. movies. Um, he set the tone for so many villains to come after him. Um, you know, this this big, like, imposing figure that right from the start of this film comes right in, um, takes charge, intimidates everyone around him, and... Um, you know, it's very it's very clear cut because you have this, you know, in, in the way that was shot, you know, have this huge figure in black against this stark white background of, mm. of the ship to to visually, you know, cue you. OK, yes, he's the bad guy. And, and if you don't believe us, well, hey, here's him choking someone and raising them a foot off the ground um, by the neck and then throwing him to the wall you know, like you do, but, um, but, but, you know, Dave, Dave Prowse was just this incredible physical performance. And then when you paired him with James Earl Jones's commanding voice, that deep resonant voice, and it was just, you know, you, it couldn't be matched. And then, you know, like, um, you know, and I, and I keep going back to this, but, you know, when you saw Leia stack, you know, who's like me, you know, all of five foot stacked mm-hmm. up against Vader. Um, you know, it, it, it couldn't be more contrasting against mm-hmm. these two, but yet, you know, you still had Leia still standing up to them. Yeah. And, 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 and back, which was just like, okay, you didn't see what just happened to the general Angeles. I'd be watching your P's and Q's. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I think my, like probably one of my favorite um, scenes in this movie with Vader is that is that boardroom scene uh, aboard the Death Star where um, 
you know, Tarkin's telling, talking to everybody saying, Oh, Hey, look, we got rid of all the, um, the region or the, um, you know, the, the, we've swept away the remnants of the old Republic and, you know, the now Imperial Senate, Charles, the I know you're searching for the term. It's the Imperial Senate, the Imperial yeah. Senate. Yes. Thank you. So I appreciate that. Thank you. But, but, you know, and then when you have that one snotty guy, because there's always that one snotty guy at, at a office meeting and that snotty guy is like, well, you know, Hey, you know, your, your, your hokey religion has not conjured up the stolen data tapes and keeps mocking him and pushing him. And then, you know, something's going to happen. And it's, you know, it, it, Vader obviously deals with it in this very calm, eerily calm way and proceeds to force strangle that that imperial officer and you know says that great one of my favorite all lines in the, in star wars saying i find your lack of faith disturbing mm-hmm. seriously yeah, you want to call my religion hokey one more time yeah. i dare you yeah. i double yeah. dare you <laughs> and and everybody else in the room shuts up no further dissension oh like okay okay we're down with this we're cool we're cool yeah, we're we're on board so Note um, yourself, don't mention force again got it <laughs> so this is this is the important of, of of using the force at an office meeting so um it definitely gets more results that way but uh and then you know you, you he has that great confrontation with obi-wan that great fight um you know which obviously feels a little one-sided because hey obi-wan and alec guinness you know it wasn't like the the, the incredible martial arts fueled sword fights uh, lightsaber fights from more recent movies, so it, it feels a little timid. But but it was important, and we didn't know how important until later on, um, with, with the you know the prequels and whatnot. So um, it, that was very iconic. And then of course you know the 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 you know when he's in the in the trench, uh, trying to you know chase down Luke right before he uh, is able to destroy the Death Star and. Then Han Solo comes in, swoops, knocks him away. And interestingly, you know, in the, for the time period, it was very interesting that Vader wasn't killed off. He mm-hmm. was just essentially sent packing, and he flies off in his, in his special Darth Vader TIE fighter um, mm-hmm. that nobody else has and flies away. So, um, you know, like, we're like, I'll see you again, you know. But, um, you know, I'll be back. <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, at the time, we never knew that he he would come back, and so uh, so I thought it was interesting that uh, of all the villains that die on the Death Star, Vader escapes and survives another day. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, because up until that point, we did not even know if we'd get a sequel or anything of that nature, Charles. So you definitely make a good point because obviously in all these movies, the villain is usually dies. He just kind of you know flies off screen, and that's the end of it. Um, and Rachel, when it comes to you, what do you, what are your thoughts on Darth Vader? Oh, Darth Vader. I love Darth Vader. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's just a great villain. There's a reason he's ranked so high when, you know, people list out, you know, top movie villains of all time. You know, he's usually up there at number one, if not very, very close to it. Um, and he's just a, just a an physically imposing character. Um, and it, you know, as, as Sam was saying, that is because of, of the David Prowse and just the sheer size of him. Um, you know, the man was 
like six six or something like that and just this huge you know huge muscles you know he was built um and then to get that that james earl jones voice that commanding voice out of it you know which it's, it's yeah i alluded to it earlier about you know you got a british accent bad guy uh Darth Vader's the one exception, although David Prowse was British and he did do the voice and they decided that it wasn't imposing enough. Um, and then that's why they got James Earl Jones to 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 dub the the voice. Um, and it's just it's just that's just movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's movie yes. gold right there. Interestingly, uh, after they tried to get Orson Welles, they thought about him. Oh wow. <laughs> But then they uh, thought that um, Orson Welles would be too recognizable, so they went yeah. with James Earl Jones. <laughs> True story. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, I I don't know if if uh, I'm trying to think because I've been to not the Wax Museum in the Wisconsin Dells, but I've been to others like Madame Tussauds and, and a couple of places. Um, but I don't think I saw the Darth Vader cause I think the Madame Tussauds that I went to in Las Vegas, it did have a section for like your monsters and stuff. And that's probably where Darth Vader was, but I refused to go through that section because I didn't want to see like, you know, Leatherface and other things too. <laughs> <Don't blame laughs> so, yeah. So I skipped that. So I missed out. Um, but, um, yeah, when we went to Disneyland um, in 2006, five, 2005, uh, 2015, goodness, I don't even know what year it is. <laughs> this year's almost over. I'm over it. Uh, 2015. I was trying to do math in my head and speak at the same time. Because it's 2015 because it was our sixth wedding anniversary and Disneyland was having its 60th anniversary year. Uh, so, um, but that was right. We went before The Force Awakens was released. Like The Force Awakens come, came out like a week or two after we went. Um, but at that point, like the hype was big with just Disney in general. It's like, hey, we own Star Wars now and we got the new movies coming and some of the old cast is coming back and but then we've got these new characters and we were starting to see like Ray and, and Finn and, and on things and I always thought it was funny that, you know, if I could talk to John you know, talk to like someone like John Boyega and it'd be like, Did you know when you signed up for this that your face would end up like all over a theme park? Uh <laughs> even before the movie came out. Uh, so like the, the hype was, was big uh, for, for star Wars. Cause everyone's like, Oh my God, new movie. Um, and they have, um, they had at the time you could meet uh, Darth Vader and Boba Fett, both as meetable characters and Chewie too. Um, and when we met Darth Vader, uh, I proceeded to get in front of him and kneel on my knee. <laughs> 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 I 
was wearing a Darth Vader shirt. Because uh, I always joke that it's like, come to the dark side, we have cookies. And I love cookies. Uh, so <laughs> the dark side, like, we've got chocolate chip. I'm like, I'll be right there. <laughs> got your favorite Girl Scout cookie. Sign me up. Uh, <laughs> Like Empire, what Empire? Just give me cookies. Uh, so yeah, I can't. I can't. Yeah, in a different, different situation, when maybe you know the proper lighting and everything, and I turned a corner and saw Darth Vader. Yeah, I may I might get a little scared, but the one time I have met Darth Vader, I bowed. Uh, so <laughs> as as one should, I think. But Better than not. I'm sure if you didn't, that would have not been pretty. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, as, as I mentioned, you know, previously on this podcast, I'm not the biggest fan of the Star Wars franchise, but I totally recognize why Vader became so iconic. Granted, at this time, it, as Charles was saying, James Earl Jones was not known as he is today. And being a huge Lion King fan, I did almost expect him to say, remember who you are at some point. But uh, of course, of course, we didn't get that. And also, may I say, Vader's quite the badass when it comes to rapping as well, folks. Check out epic rap battles of history where he all he three of them. <laughs> yes, where he squares off against Adolf, Adolf Hitler. Hitler of all people. <laughs> so, folks, check that out. Other than that, you know, between David Prowse's menacing physical presence and James Earl Jones's dry and almost sterile voice, you cannot but be spellbound by this character, and you so want to know mo- more which we, of course, gladly we will get in subsequent movies and get quite the big spoiler in the next film, which, for fun, I won't mention, even though it has been mentioned. I'm sure the world knows by now. Thank you, Homer Simpson, for ruining that for everybody who was going to the movies. That said, (laughs) (laughs) the the combined work of Prowse and Jones just makes you feel this character and actually gives that frozen-featured mask so much expression as you actually feel whatever emotion Vader is going through. And though he, he, he represents the dark side of the Force and therefore everything that is evil about it, he is incredibly noble as well and one worthy of respect, I feel. And, you know, and such a cool leader, you know, you do think that him and the Empire could, you know, because he is such a great leader, but how can they find such rubbish people as the Stormtroopers? As man, these guys are so bad at their jobs. I guess they that when it comes to uh, hiring, you know, there's, they just don't have people who are, like well, checking if these guys can shoot. It's yeah. a draft. Their heart's not in it. And clones, yeah. man, you make a copy of a copy of a copy. It's not very sharp. Yeah, you, have, you ever copy yeah. the VHS from a VHS from a VHS? Eventually, you know, the quality goes down. Uh-huh. And that's what happens it's when you basically just it. shapes and degrees of light by that point. It's not. It's mm-hmm. not anything that can aim. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's what well, happens you, when you start out outsourcing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, where's human yeah, and the draft? This is why you shouldn't have a draft because you get people whose heart just isn't in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, if I, I you know, Empire, if you, feel free to uh, to uh, employ me as human resources. I can be- get you better stormtroopers than these. Seriously, but but aside from that, yes, Darth Vader is is fantastic. I mean, as I said, not being a Star Wars fan, I absolutely love Darth Vader. He's just a fantastic, fantastic character. So let's get to then how this movie comes to a close. Where of course we get. You know, everybody getting their medals and everybody's happy, happy. Darth Vader's flown off. We don't know if we'll ever see him again. Holly, were you satisfied with how this movie came to a close? Uh, yeah, and but I think even though they did make up for it later, we were, Chewie should have gotten the medal right away along with the droids. I mean, thank you. They, they also <laughs> helped. Sure, Han and Luke deserved it too, but hey, you have three other people. 
people involved, give them the credit where credit's due. I, I definitely will agree. And, you know, Charles, you made a big deal of this. In fact, you know, when you and I talked about this, were you satisfied with how Star Wars ends? Uh, yes, I am. Because one thing one thing that I, I think is so great about this movie and probably why it's become my favorite movie is that you can watch this movie and, you know, without having had the sequels later on, um, you know, you could have taken it by itself and its face value right there, but it's self-contained. Um, it, it has a beginning, a middle and an end right there. You didn't, if you didn't want to watch any more star Wars movies, you could just settle with this one and, and it stands alone. It, it, you know, it stands by itself. It's a very much, you know, a very fairy tale ending, you know, the, the, the good guys defeat the bad guys. And there's a nice little ceremony at the end. And everybody, and everybody except for Chewbacca, for some in, inexplicable reason, gets medals. Now, the droids you could see because, well, hey, you know, they still hadn't gotten their equal rights by this point. So it was probably more of a political thing. Archie but, should have uh, at least gotten the Purple Heart. He was, he was wounded in battle. That, exactly. This is true. This is true. This is true. But, uh, but Chewie, at the very least, should have gotten a medal. I'm sorry. Thankfully, it, it, he gets one, but he has to wait all the way until Episode Nine to get one. Yeah, I, I, very, very true. And then, and, you know, you, you get the great John Williams music sending it off. And uh, mm -hmm. you, know, you obviously can't say enough about John Williams score in this film. Oh, my God, uh, yes. It's, it's just it, it defines Star Wars. I mean, it's just I don't think Star Wars would have been the success without it. And, um, you know, just that that big rousing climax and then that smash cut into uh, the closing credits theme. Um, it's just, it's amazing. And I, and I, and I love it. And, uh, it's just, it's, it's, it, it's perfect way to close as far as I'm concerned, this film. Mm. Well, well, very, very well said. And, and Rachel, what about you? Were you satisfied with how this film ended? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we get this, this, the, the great, you know, battle, the Death Star battle, the battle of Yavin four. Um, and, you know the, this just great, just great cinematography with the the models and and stuff because again CGI was not a thing so this was all like model work, um, and it's just it looks amazing even now almost forty five years later, um, so uh, you know and and you know, Obi Wan reaching out through the Force to you know still instruct Luke uh, to, to take that shot, not worrying about the computer and everything, and, you know, he makes that shot, and Han comes back at the the last minute, you know, with a, a change of heart, and they get to, to celebrate with the ceremony and everything, and R2 get, gets fixed, and everybody's happy, and yeah, that John Williams score, I... Ugh. The John Williams, we the Five Ish Fangirls, we did a whole episode just about John Williams mm -hmm. last year, yeah. um, before uh, the Rise of Skywalker came out because we knew that that he that was it for him for Star Wars that he was hanging up scoring any more Star Wars movies after after that one. So we did a whole episode about him, um, and you know he's just 
Ugh, just thinking it just thinking about it not even hearing it just thinking about the john williams score i'm getting goosebumps mm-hmm. uh so uh yeah the, that the his his music especially for star wars is just so so iconic um and it's just the you know <laughs> Lots of cherry is on a very, very good Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that, and and now I want a Sunday which I don't have. So I mean, because in in Italy we don't know what Sundays are, if you will. So I <laughs> we get we have gelato, but we don't have Sundays. But oh well. And Zan, when it comes to you, I know that the the final piece that gets played in this um, in, in in this film is very near and dear to you for many reasons. So were you satisfied with the ending of Star Wars? Yeah, Nick, you're right. When uh, <laughs> I, I went and visited some friends um, the night it was declared that Joe Biden had won the presidency, <laughs> and I walked in playing this on my phone <laughs> because the empire is now dead. <laughs> so it is it is very near and dear to my heart. I love um, – it's in probably one of my top five pieces. It's probably number three in my top five pieces of music from Star Wars, number one, of course, being the uh, Imperial March, number two mm-hmm. being the Binary Sunset, and then this one is just, it's so its so wonderful, it's like, it starts out in that minor key, um, but it, but then it turns into that major key, where it, where, where the, when the flutes come in, and the strings come in, and it's much more upbeat, it's like, we started out having a hard time, and then it got better, and then... Frack, yes. This is mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the re- score one for the rebellion. So it's fa- it's fantastic. This is by no means my favorite John Williams score, but it is in my top five um, for sure. Um, my favorite John Williams piece, my favorite Williams, my favorite John Williams score, hands down, is Superman the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Imperial March is just one of the greatest. I mean, a lot of people. Give me a hard time when I say that because it's basically Mars <laughs> from the planets by Holtz, but it's so good. <laughs> it's so fantastic. But um, I, I do like the ending of this movie. The the, um, the trench dogfight is fantastic. It's something you know we had never really seen before. We'd seen that kind of you know Charles and Rachel. We sort of talked about in Wings, our first episode of Gold Standard, mm-hmm. where. You know, you see dogfights, but they're planes, and this was something completely otherworldly and something mm-hmm. that we felt that we understood, even though it was something we'd never seen before. This is a this is a universe, the end of galaxy, far, far away that we'd never seen before, but we're still completely engrossed in it. And even to this day, you're like sad when Biggs gets shot down, and mm-hmm. you're on the edge of your seat, even though you know what's going to happen. And I think that's a that's a real standard of a great movie is if you're still on the edge of your seat after a thousand viewings you know another movie like that for me is uh, you know holly you mentioned back to the future Mm -hmm. i'm on the edge of my seat in back to the future even though i know he's gonna make it back Mm -hmm. (laughs) and star wars is no exception Mm -hmm. and and i and i have a little problem well i'll get to that i'll get to that in my in my problems here in a second um (laughs) i like the fact that you know charles you were saying that they weren't sure they were going to have sequels, and this is a completely and totally standalone movie, but there are little nods to the fact that, to the audience, this story can definitely go on. Mm-hmm. Because, like you were saying, Darth Vader survives this. And he's uh-huh. just, you know, spinning around in space in his little in his little TIE fighter. 
So, but he's still there. He's still alive. So he could come back and and kill us in ways we can't even imagine. And then you also have that wink that Han Solo gives Princess Leia. Mm-hmm. And she kind of smiles back at him. Like, she doesn't, like, look away with their whole, mm-hmm. like, you know, their their whole Tracy and Hepburn crap. Where they're, like, <laughs> you know, their, their adversarial romance type of a thing. Where, but she sort of looks at him like, yeah, I see you winking at me, boy. Um, <laughs> she's very, uh, you can tell that they're going to be into each other. And then you can see Luke going, like the hell man again (laughs) we find i mean we sort of find out that like later in the in the deleted scenes of this movie that like biggs kind of got the girls and he's like what another dude that's just gonna take all the girls business so luke even mentions when they're on the ship he's like or in hand like you think a princess and a guy like no looks like no 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 mine mine (laughs) which you know now it's like and hundred smiles by the way yeah hundred smiles like yeah. Like, yeah, uh, all right, I get, I get where you're going with, kid, but, you know, she needs a man. <laughs> so, <laughs> and part of it, but I, I like to see that as, like, no, stay the hell away from my sister. Like, I, I like to, yeah, yeah. I like to think of it that way. But no, um, what we know now, yes. No, but we would, no, yeah, what we know now. And so I, I like, you know, I, I, I like that the story is going to go on, that they give you these nods of, like, where these characters are going to go after this. There's two things that bother me about this ending. You guys already said it about how Chewbacca and the droids don't get medals. At least R2 should have gotten one. Like I said, when Charles was, was talking about R2 needing one, he gets injured. He's on the ship too. He's on the mm-hmm. ship that, that blows up the Death Star and he gets injured. Mm-hmm. Chewbacca, mm-hmm. he's in the Falcon when he comes back and I'll bet you anything Chewbacca was like, dude, you gotta go back and save those people. Like Chewbacca was yeah. probably part of the voice of reason for Han Solo. And probably guilt tripping Han at the same time. Exactly. Like, <laughs> come on, go back. You like that girl. We got our money. We can this is gonna be ten minutes out of our day. We can go pay off Job of the Hut later. Just just do it. Come on, man. It's the right thing. You know it's the right thing to do. You saved me once, now let's save these people. You know, so mm-hmm. you know there Chewbacca contributed to that. The other thing that bothers me about the ending of this movie why are they still hanging out on Yavin? <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, the fourth moon of Yavin. I'm sorry, I'm aware it's not the planet Yavin, but right. you would think that they'd be like, okay, Empire knows where we are. We might have blown up some of them, but I'm sure more of them are coming. <laughs> we we blew up their big, we blew up their big number one destroyer. They're going to come and they, rain heck down on us. We better get the heck out of Dodge. They've got a bunch of, like, triangular ships that are going to come after us now. I just know it. Mm-hmm. And so that I always thought that was kind of strange. It's like, they for sure know where you are now. Get the hell out of there. <laughs> Have the ceremony on one of the transports, okay? It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you know, of, of course, that's that's a sort of hindsight being twenty twenty kind of a thing. But yeah, I am very, I I do like the end of this movie. Uh, good prevails. The specter of evil is still out there, which is how you know how we like life to be. That good prevails, but we know we still have to keep fighting. Yeah, very very true. We do definitely have to keep fighting, and you know, to to you know, that point of you know, this movie definitely laid grounds. There were threads for sequels, even though I guess at the time the audience didn't know where it would come. And you know, John Williams is just a fantastic, fantastic composer. I mean, my favorite four composers uh, when it comes to movies are uh, John Williams, Hans Zimmer, 
Um, and of course, you know, you've got Inyo Morricone, who's a huge, huge in- influence for me when it came to just loving music. And, uh, so I, I mean, I, I can't, but I can't, but definitely love, love the John Williams score. And it's so poignant when it comes to the, the final scene in this film. I mean, it ends well, as I said, you know, good prevails, like you guys were saying. So even if we hadn't gotten other movies, it definitely would have still worked, you know? So I think it, it's still, it's more than serviceable as in, we didn't end on a cliffhanger. We got this film. You can even be happy with just watching this, but of course, you know, gladly and luckily we got more of these, of these, of these great films indeed. So guys, let's get to our, if we were the Academy segment, this film was nominated for best picture at the 50th Academy Awards alongside the goodbye girl, Julia and the turning point. The gold statue of course was taken by Annie Hall. So the big question here is, did Star Wars deserve the gold standard over Annie Hall or and did it even deserve to be nominated? Let's start with you, Charles. Do you think Star Wars should have beaten Annie Hall and do you think it deserved to be nominated? Oh, hell yes. But <laughs> I'm a bit biased. I, you know, I, I understand that Annie Hall, you know, the Academy, and I'm sure you've, you've talked about this many, many times, the Academy loves to go for the more serious film. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they're especially in the 70s, sci-fi, again, not taken very seriously. So it was a miracle it was even nominated for Best Picture, to be quite honest, um, at this time. Even though, you know, obviously, when you think about movies that have had the much greater cultural impact, I think Star Wars is easily um, in that category more than Annie Hall, to be quite honest. Um you know, it, it, it's a film that's resonated more. So, yeah, I, I do feel it's unfair. But, again, you know, it's hard to look back some 40-odd years later and uh, try to armchair quarterback this one. It's, it's, um, it's a travesty. But, you know, it's, it's, again, it was a period of its time. And then, fortunately, the time was that the Academy wasn't going to take it very seriously. So it was, you know, it, you know obviously, I think it had more – Lasting impact, like I said, than Annie Hall or Julia or The Turning Point, Good, Goodbye Girl. Um, but um, at least it was nominated. That's all I can say about the Best Picture nominations. Uh-huh. More, more than fair. And, and Rachel, what about you? Do you think Star Wars deserves to beat Annie Hall and, 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 and does it deserve its nomination? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just, yeah, as we talked about uh, earlier yeah, there weren't there weren't any acting wins, and Allegheny was the only person to be nominated. And he was nominated for best supporting actor as for his role as Obi Wan, but this was kind of the start to. <laughs> we even now <laughs> lament about. Uh, every award season that the types of movies that we enjoy, you know, your sci-fi superhero type movies don't win any of the big awards, but they do really well in the technicals (laughs) Uh, because it won for visual effects, film editing, art direction, costume design, sound, um, which, you know, absolutely. John Williams won for Best Original Score. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, the the fact that, you know, uh, George Lucas did get nominated for Best Director, which 
is is good. Um, and it did get nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Um, but, yeah, just just looking at the other nominees, I... You know, Annie, Annie Hall, you know, for... Star Wars, even, even when making it, George Lucas thought that this was going to be a flop. Everybody thought it was going to be a flop, except for Steven Spielberg. He was the only person who, <laughs> who actually thought that this movie was going to be like, what you know, a movie that was going to stand the test of time and change movies as we see them. And he was right. Okay. Uh, at and the time, everybody Steven thought Spielberg he was nuts. for pushing the button yeah. to yeah. keep doing this. Go yeah, for it. yeah. To the to the point where he, because even George thought that like Close Encounters, which came out the same year, um, and did get nominated for some Academy Awards as well, um, he thought Close Encounters was going to do better than Star Wars, and they ended up agreeing that um, they would give each other two and a half percent of the of the box office. <laughs> for for their respective movies to each other. So even now, Steven Spielberg gets money from Star Wars, oh and George gets money from Close Encounters. Uh, uh, nice little but, working relationship there. Yeah, well, they've been friends since college, so it was just kind of a, you know, it's like, yeah, well, you know, you believe in my movie, you believe in mine, now I'm going to give you a little cash. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot better than the Steve Jobs and... Uh, yeah uh, microsoft <laughs> yeah um but yeah you know just like looking even just based on box office star wars was the highest grossing movie in 1977 yeah. annie hall mm-hmm. was 10th <sighs> like there are so many other movies in between those that weren't even uh uh, the, the Spy Who Loved Me, James Bond movie. It it was higher listed than that. Uh, Saturday Night Fever, uh, wow. Smokey and the Bandit, which is one of Chauncey's favorite movies of all time. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it's just yeah. When we get to Annie Hall, I'm I'm not going to get on that soapbox now because I will see that <laughs> when we get to Annie Hall. But yeah, the I have I have thoughts about <laughs> Annie Hall. And its director. Uh, mm-hmm. more we have opinions. So. <laughs> yeah. Right there with you. So, yeah, that, that, that influences my opinion, but even without that, no, mm-hmm. I think, I think this, is, this is another opportunity where the Academy could have done something outside the box, kind of like where they missed it with Snow White. Yeah. And, you know, we could have seen the history of the Academy Awards completely change if they had decided to not play it safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have been a very different story indeed. And Zan, I know as it is a very rhetorical question, but uh, <laughs> does Star Wars deserve to win the Oscar Best Picture over Annie Hall? Does it deserve to win over Annie Hall? Yes. Um, I have I have some opinions, and I will try and keep them brief because, like Rachel said, we're going to talk about this in a, in, a, in a couple of years. <laughs> yes. Um, I feel like Star Wars. First of all, we joke a lot about how Oscars comedies don't get Oscars. Annie Hall is like one of the seven comedies that has won an Oscar. Yeah. Um. So if this if the the granddaddy of all genre films is going to 
lose to an Oscar. At least it won to, at least it lost to a comedy, I guess. And I feel like if you had asked me this question in 1991 or prior, I might have a different answer for you. But again, like Rachel, I have opinions about Woody Allen and conflicts about Woody Allen, about how much I loved his early movies. Um, well, not his early movies. The 70s were kind of his heyday. Um, I spent pretty much my junior high life with Annie Hall as my favorite movie. Um, I felt very represented by Annie Hall. She was just such a weirdo, and I felt like such a weirdo that it. she was this quirky weirdo, and I felt like everybody loved her, and it was a very empowering movie for me in that way, that you can still be who you are and be the weirdo and still be a beloved-type character. Um, Woody Allen, that being said, I have a hard time watching his movies now because I have a hard time validating him as a as a person let alone as an artist and i have to look at it as i am validating diane keaton and i am validating tony roberts <laughs> because <laughs> otherwise i have a lot of sense of guilt about it and um one of my all-time favorite movies for a long time was this and sleeper i own neither of them because i refuse to give woody allen any money um that being said um i definitely think star wars would have been my pick over Annie Hall for sure. And I think it harkens back to the early days of the Oscars, which we're still in, in gold standard when we're on our regular schedule. This definitely would win outstanding production. This was the most outstanding production of the year. Um, so from an outstanding production standpoint, I don't think anything, um, I don't think anything rivals this for this year. Um, I also think that if we were going to have two best supporting actors from the same movie we could have done that twice and alec guinness and peter cushing could have been nominated uh -huh. for star wars in my opinion uh -huh. um but if we are going to be talking about best supporting actor in jason robards for my money julia is what wins this year Mm. is what should have won this year. I absolutely adore this movie. I adore everybody in it. Everybody does such a fantastic job. And when you compare it to other movies that are up this year, Goodbye Girl, a, a, a fine story, a sweet story, again, a comedy. It's uh -huh. not gonna, it, it's not going anywhere. Um, the Turning Point, it's okay, but the world is a misogynist place and it's a story about women. So I don't think it was really going to go very far. <laughs> but for my money, the best movie of this of these nominees, um, from a storytelling standpoint and from an impact standpoint and from an emotional standpoint, is Julia. Mm, but really I would go Julia, Star Wars, Annie Hall, Turning Point, Goodbye Girl. That would be my that would be my order. And I don't like saying it out loud because again, I don't like validating the work or the life or the person, Woody Allen. But that's where that's where I fall. Well, hey, uh, you know, totally fair, totally fair. And, and Holly, what about you? Do you feel that that Star Wars should have won over Annie Hall? Well, I'm kind of biased. I mean, Annie Hall. Good. I mean, I'm kind of partial to Goodbye Girl because I'm a I like Richard Dreyfuss and it's a romantic comedy. But, I mean, like Rachel said, I think that if the Academy wouldn't have played it, you know, didn't play it safe and had Star Wars win for Best Picture, we could have seen a whole different shift where science fiction would be and fantasy would be a little more respected and not get 
the bad rap from the academy and make it more open and welcoming to the public at large. <laughs> mm. very, so, I mean, very that's tr- kind of where I stand on it. <laughs> well, very true. I mean, heck, you know, being Jewish myself, I we still have Jewish guilt for Woody Allen. I will say that. So um, <laughs> we're still trying to apologize to the world for, for, for Woody Allen in many respects. So, <laughs> you know, when when Zan was talking about being feeling guilty and stuff. Yes. Believe you. Believe you me, folks. The, the chosen people are incredibly apologetic when it comes to Woody Allen. Um, I do feel that, uh, you know, I see why Annie Hall won. I'm in a huge I'm a huge Diane Keaton fan. And I and I'm happy that Annie Hall won because mainly of Diane Keaton. But, you know, it's it's always the whole thing of what if, you know, if Star Wars had won, probably other movies that, you know, we so love and enjoy would have won Best Picture in years to come. And, you know, of course, when we look at things like The Lord of the Rings, when Return of the King won, we're so everybody's super happy because it was a turning point. But I can see why they went this way, because Annie Hall is a fantastic, fantastic film, you know, uh, Woody Allen's sins aside. But uh, it is definitely a missed opportunity. So, uh, but uh, but I, d- I definitely see why they went that way. So let's get to ratings then. Where does this movie rate for you guys on a scale of one to ten? Let's start with you, Rachel, who are you, is usually the Russian judge when it comes to gold standards. What, what do you give Star Wars out of ten? My reputation precedes me. <laughs> it does. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, even though I you know came into the the fandom a little late uh <laughs> um and i i do consider myself a fan it's still it's still not like it's not quite my like a b tier fandom but it's not a tier fandom either uh it's like a minus fan fandom uh <laughs> uh but i have huge respect for these these the, the franchise and the movies in general you know it, it's not all been fabulous and and wonderful and, and amazing um the, some of it's been great hello watch the mandalorian uh <laughs> <laughs> um but uh you know this is the movie that that started at all even though at the time people did not know that uh except for steven spielberg apparently um yeah but uh yeah and it's it's a good movie you could watch it just by itself and and not be concerned about all the other other you know the rest of the trilogy the the other trilogies the the tv shows all of that you could just watch that one and be content with it and be happy with it but is as nick alluded to (laughs) there is another movie that there is another movie in this trilogy that's slightly better uh than than this one um therefore it that does hurt this one not necessarily hurt this one a little but that one's going to get a slightly higher score than this one Hmm. but that being said this is you know this movie helped get us to where we are now as far as the types of movies that i love the the ones the, the academy hates to give the big awards to Lord of the Rings aside, um, but they get all the technical awards, and John Williams has enough Oscars for every corner of his house, and this, you know, this franchise helped. Um, uh, so, because of the 
because this is you know kind of the grandfather of that um and the fact that it did get nominated in itself even though it didn't win it's getting nominated is a step in the right direction although we're still waiting uh for a proper oh, sci-fi movie mm-hmm. <laughs> to win best picture because uh, lord of the rings is fantasy not sci-fi but still um uh but um yeah just because of what this movie did for production and the franchises that will will come down the line both from it and you know similar to it um i give this one an eight and a half Hmm. well that's 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 definitely very very fair and and zan what about you what do you give this film this one gets a 9.5 for me wow it is the beginning of so much in the world of film. Um, not just sci-fi, not just adventure movies, not just epic stories. Yes, it did take a lot from its ancestors of westerns and samurai pictures, but it put that same formula together the same way samurai pictures and westerns did, but in a different in a different setting and created characters we love and created a phenomenon, you know, not just, not just, not just movie wise. I mean, star Wars was, you know, we, we talk about the, you know, um, the directors of the seventies who started out as just these, you know, college near do wells who start, who eventually made the most memorable movies of the seventies. People like, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, all of that sort of, um, uh, what is that book that, uh, something in Raging Bulls, what is that, oh, I can't, oh, I'm losing my mind, you guys, Um, (laughs) where it's the idea of these directors who started out making these character, story-driven, not huge, big-budget movies becoming the highest-grossing movies of all time. Mm -hmm. It launched careers of extremely famous actors. Harrison Ford is like one of the most famous actors on the planet. He's been in three of the most successful film franchises in the history of film franchises. Star Wars, um, Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones and, and Jack, and, no, and Jack Ryan. Oh, well, that too. Yeah. I don't know if you thought of Blade Runner. <laughs> shows Blade you Runner, since it's only two movies, it's not really a franchise, in my opinion. I mean, as much as I love, 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 love Blade Runner, please don't make, don't ever think I'm talking down about Blade Runner because I never yeah. have anything bad to say about Blade Runner. But these multiple franchises, multiple story franchises, Ryan. three of the top grossing ones are Harrison Ford. Like, yeah. it's, it's what he's, he can just, he's, he's everything to so many people. Um, the idea that a film score was cool again. That was one of the risks George Lucas took in this movie because, again, you have that, that idea back in the 70s of, you know, independent film and, you know, not be like, like big budget scores were like the okay boomer of movie music at the time. It was, um looked at as dated um easy riders raging bulls (laughs) i 
I just thought of it. <laughs> That's the book. If you want to read that book about to learn about 70s cinema. Um, and the idea that, that, the, that the movie score could be cool again. That, it, that you could have these younger people doing movie scores and they're going to be as iconic as the movies themselves, if not more. I mean, especially with something like, you know, John Williams' Jaws. You could have never seen Jaws in your life, but you know that score. You know that, uh-huh. you know that piece of music. Um, the way this influenced the toy industry and the moving marketing mm-hmm. industry. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. didn't that's Mark where George he- made all of his money. That's where he made all of his money, <laughs> and so did Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill got like a couple of lunches and $10 to be in this movie because he said, what I'll do is I'll take a piece of the marketing. And to this day, smart man. <laughs> any any marketing for Star Wars, any toys, anything, you know, like point three percent of that goes to Mark Hamill. And he had the reason we didn't see Mark Hamill very much during the eighties is because we didn't have to. He didn't have to work ever again after these came out. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Mark Mark Hamill works for the love of it, and Mark Hamill is such a wonderful person in his embracing of his geekiness and he work he does what he loves he doesn't he doesn't have to take a lot of movies that he doesn't that just because he needs the rent because somebody's going to buy some kenner figures and he's going to he's going to be a millionaire again so it, it changed it changed the face of that it changed the face of how we go to the movies you know we didn't see people lining up for movies before star wars you know, there there were I in the yearbook for nineteen seventy seven and my high school, and I, I didn't graduate in nineteen seventy seven, I've just seen the yearbook. They talked about the the big things for that year and um it actually no, it was nineteen seventy eight was that Star Wars had come out the previous summer and it was still in the theaters when everybody graduated in nineteen seventy eight. Like, that's how long it lasted. (laughs) And it changed... It changed the idea that you need huge stars to have a huge movie. It changed the concept of sequels. I mean, this, this movie just became the blueprint for so much. That you can't, I mean, you have to give it points for that. And you've got to give it points for just being a really good movie. Mm-hmm, it's a good mm-hmm. story with characters you care about, with a storyline that keeps you on the edge of your seat. It's, it's pretty much what you want in a movie. Mm-hmm. Very, very well said. And, and Holly, what about you? What do you give this film? Uh, I'm with Zan. I'm giving it a 9.5. Ooh, okay. There's a uh, there's another movie in this whole the whole saga that will get the perfect score. <laughs> okay. Not not playing my hand, but I think a lot of people probably know <laughs> which one I'd be going for. <laughs> Gee, well, I wonder. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, we we all we all here wondering, and 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 I'm and I'm very curious here. You know, Charles, what do you give this? <laughs> yeah, that's a puzzler, isn't it? Um, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I um, I know. I telegraphed this 
three hours ago. My, <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> but uh, this is my all-time favorite movie. This is the movie that made me fall in love with movies. So, obviously, I have to give this a 10. I know that Empire Strikes Back, a lot of people prefer it to Star Wars. But for me, Empire Strikes Back can't stand alone by itself, like Star Wars can. It, it's... It's a much more complete movie. It's it's an it's it, by itself. It's an independent movie. It you know you, it's not dependent on anything else that came before it or after it. it. You know, is it great? Yeah, that we have things that came before it and after it. Sure, but you know, if that had never happened, um, that would have been okay. And thankfully, though, fans embraced it. They loved it, and so therefore, I'm going to give this one. Um, 10 out of 10 shots in a million. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Because, because this is, uh, you know, this is everything I want in a movie. Um, it's obviously everything a lot of people of my generation wanted in a movie, which is why it was so successful in the box office, why it lasted so long in the box office, and uh, why it was unfortunately unrecognized by the Academy. Um you know, as far as uh, what it what it could have been recognized, the the it, it, you know with the academy, it's always this been this constant battle of um, of art versus um, populism in a lot of ways. That you know, what's popular, what do the masses enjoy, versus what is you know creatively uh, innovative. And in this case, with Star Wars. I think we had a nice little blend of both because this was a game changer. This is the this was a science fiction movie that kind of set the tone for a lot of science fiction movies that came after this, and essentially brought sci-fi back into um, acceptable, popular mainstream uh, movie going once again. You know, the, the popularity that it hadn't seen since probably the 1950s. Yeah, and so. You know, yes, Lucas borrowed, uh, you know, had a lot of influences with this, but, um, but, uh, you know, you know, it's a, I think it's a true artist that knows how to take those influences and craft them into something new, something that hasn't been seen before. And that's what we got with Star Wars, you know, something that came along at the exactly the right time, was presented in exactly the right way with an incredible ensemble cast. And, uh, as a result became, uh, an incredible, not just a franchise, but just uh, a storytelling legend that is resonating to this day. Well, uh, you know, you, you make some, some, some great points there, Charles. I guess then I'm the Russian judge in this because I'm going to be giving this film an 8 out of 10 as it's a great, great movie. I mean, as I said, coming from not being a huge Star Wars fan, I really, really enjoyed re-watching it. And it did have me want to go and see what happened next, you know, knowing that we did have other movies. So I would definitely give it credit for that. Darth Vader, wonder, a wonderful villain. The John Williams score is fantastic. So, yeah, it's an, it's an 8 out of 10 for me. So we talked about this film and dissected it. And of course, should you listeners out there wish to join us on one of our discussions or simply share your feedback about the podcast or certain films in writing, you can do, do so by shooting us an email at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. That's goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. Feel free to follow us on Twitter, where you can find us at, at Oscars Gold, or on Facebook, where you can find us as Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. We love hearing from you guys, and we also appreciate the follow and support. Also, if you'd like to be like our Patreon Holly, 
and ha and of course choose an Oscar nominee for us to discuss on outside the film that you love, feel free to check out the great tiers we have going on on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash goldstandardoscars. So let's get to shameless self-promotion then outside this podcast. Where can our listeners find you guys on the interwebs? Let's start with you, Zan. You know, where can folks find you? Well, you can find me with uh, you and Rachel talking about Oscar winners on Gold Standard mm -hmm. right here um, on our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> yes. And you can find me and Charles on Ghostwood, the Twin Peaks podcast, where when I am not sick from salmonella, we are discussing all things Twin Peaks and all things David Lynch and anything tangentially David Lynch or Twin Peaks related. And with Charles on uh, Drunk Cinema, where we imbibe adult beverages and discuss our favorite movies. Fantastic. And Holly, what about you? Well, you can find me with Rachel on the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. And you can find me on Instagram at hollymac underscore 79 and also on Twitter as well. And you can check out the Five-ish Fangirls at the com. Facebook, Twitter, you name it. <laughs> Great. And what about you, Charles? Well, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me, of course, at Charles Skaggs on the Twitter machine, at Charles Skaggs on Instagram, Charles Skaggs in Hilliard, Ohio on Facebook, and my blog of Geeky Things, Damn Good Coffee and Hot, where I talk about all kinds of comic book sci-fi goodness, and also discuss uh, news of my other podcast for Southgate Media Group, including, hey, Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast that I do with Jesse Jackson and assorted wonderful special guest companions, all of whom have, are joining me here on Gold Standard today. So thank you guys for that. Hope to have you back again soon, very, very soon. And of the Phantom Zone podcast that currently right now I'm doing with Nick, where we're finishing up The Boys Season 2 and going to be talking a couple of very special episodes as we approach episode 200 of the fandom zone very very soon on that looking forward to that i hope you guys check it out and then um ghost with the twin peaks podcast where as dan mentioned we talk all things twin peaks david lynch etc etc and uh, that little crazy drunk cinema podcast that i also do with zan where as she said we enjoy adult beverages enjoy adult language and want everybody to watch movies with us. So I hope you guys check it out as you know, we just finished watching Ferris Bueller's day off and coming up for our big December episode. We're going to be discussing die hard. I'm so excited. <laughs> I can't wait. So I uh, hope everybody enjoys that. And, I'm going to get uh, drunk with you just for the hell of it. That, that's the point of the podcast, Rachel. <laughs> and, and speaking of you, Rachel, where can folks find you? Uh, well, like Holly said, uh, I am also part of the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. So we're a weekly geek culture, pop culture uh, podcast where we talk books, video games, comics, movies, TV shows, whatever floats your boat. Whatever floats our boat, really. Uh, <laughs> don't worry about your boat. We worry about ours. Um, so uh, we, uh, and we, uh, we just we talk about all sorts of random things. So, like I said, we did a whole episode about John Williams last year. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's the kind of quality content you can find. 
find from the Five Ish Fangirls. Um, and, uh, like Holly said, you can find us at the com, and there you can find links to all of our relevant social medias. But then there's also an About Us page where you can find Holly's uh, personal social media links and mine as well. Fantastic. And folks, definitely be sure to check out all the wonderful uh, projects that uh, that everybody here on this uh, panel is involved in, of course. When it comes to me, I do host the Whiskey and Cigarettes show where we play traditional country, today's country and everything else in between. For more info about that and where to tune in, you can visit our website. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, if superhero movies are your speed, I do also host the Happiness and Darkness podcast, where we discuss superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse Image, and more. If you'd like to join me on there and discuss a superhero movie of your choice, feel free to send me an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. We're also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and the Instagram. And, uh, you know, Charles, of course, mentioned the fandoms where him and I are having a blast discussing the boys. Also, recently, I had the honor and pleasure of joining Charles on Titan Talk, the Titans podcast to discuss the second season of Doom Patrol. And speaking of things to come... Yes, it was, it was just, it was wonderful. I actually still listen to those very fondly, Charles. It's always, it's always a, I, I just love listening to those. And speaking of things to come, as mentioned previously on this podcast, we will be back with our regularly scheduled best picture reviews, where, of course, with Zan and Rachel, and we will be joined by Kirsten Coachman to discuss Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. That said, Rachel and Zan, of course, it's, I'm so happy we finally got to talk, you know, before next Thursday, because I felt terribly bereft from talking to both of you. So I'm super happy to have you both, of course, and get to talk to you. And Charles and Holly, thank you so much for joining us. And Holly, thank you so much for your patronage and support. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. I had a blast. Nick, uh, thank you so much for letting me join you guys. Um, I love your podcast. I think it's amazing, and uh, hopefully I didn't screw up my chances of coming back anytime soon. (laughs) Oh, believe you me, as they say in the MCU, Charles Skaggs will return. (laughs) That that said, folks, we will, of course, see you next time with our regularly scheduled program with Kirsten Coachman and Rebecca. Until then, enjoy those movies and keep that popcorn hot. Ciao, my people. Archie, where are you? Oh, there you are. If you come over here, you'll find a wonderful surprise. You'll have to plug into the central computer to hear what it is. That's right. No, it's not a phase vector. It's your Christmas present. At the winter star We know that's where you are Our chimney's big and round So you can come right down